Today, uh, I talked to Kevin Hickey about growing up in the Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. Um, his long history with uh, cooking and as many jobs as going up the ranks in the uh, hierarchy of uh, the chef world. Uh, his travels across America and into Europe and then back to Chicago to open a restaurant back in his home neighborhood, uh, the Duck Inn, which is down the street from where I live and where I go for brunch every single Sunday. His plans for the future, including uh, covering uh, France and maybe the rest of Europe with uh, Duck Inn hot dog stands. Uh, if you don't enjoy this conversation, I do not know what to tell you. I don't, I, I, I'm not a big... I'm not a huge stand-up fan overall. Are you? Are you? Do you like it? I I, I was a massive stand-up fan as a kid growing up. Like 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 like, who? like I was I was overexposed mm. at a very young age to Robin Williams, um, Steve Martin. Yeah. Uh, my mother took me to see Steve Martin at the Chicago Amphitheater oh, when exciting. I was probably. <laughs> nine years old or ten years old which that was not a show for kids you know? so there's the 70s the 70s, 70s. i was yeah. i was born in 69 so the okay late yeah late 70s so i was like a steve martin fanatic as a kid he was right. on saturday night live a lot yeah i was I, i've been a, a saturday night live fan mm. and one of my earliest memories i could possibly have is laying on my parents bed while they're <laughs> while they're having a a, a, a dinner party yeah in the basement underneath their bedroom and mm-hmm. I, 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 I was either forgotten about yeah or allowed because it was i would have been able to fall asleep anyway because they were yeah screaming and yelling and drinking uh, <laughs> drinking matus and lancers <laughs> until they they couldn't stand up anymore uh so i was allowed to like lay on their bed and i was watching saturday night live and i have a very very distinct memory of uh Weekend update. And so it's saying, pretty, pretty and it's early. saying 1975 on the screen. Okay. So I was like, okay, so I was six. So and Steve Martin was on a, a ton in, yeah. in the beginning because he was he was a, a, a big avant-garde uh, absurdist comedian back right. then. Um, and I and I didn't understand half of what was in his wild and crazy out. guys. King, well, the wild King and crazy Tech. guy, of course, <laughs> appealed to a child. Yeah, you know, and the air yeah. had an arrow. Yeah. Uh, oh, you did. Thing for, absolutely. <laughs> I got one at the concert. Yeah. So you know, like all that stuff appealed to a child. Like I don't. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen The Jerk. Yeah. yeah. And I and when I, and, and that's another like instance of being left alone, forgotten about, or indulged. Yeah. I'll take any one of the three. My mom. Uh, my mom was <laughs> heavy into politics. Yeah. When I was uh, my, my whole life, really, mm-hmm. particularly at that age. 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, she was very involved in political campaigns and she ran for uh, the Metropolitan Sanitary District, which mm. they call now the Metropolitan Water or whatever they call it. Anyway, yeah. it has commissioners on it. She ran for that yeah. in the 11th Ward and she lost, but election night we went. Yeah, that. you were telling me the other day she, she was a Republican. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like a fucking unicorn in Chicago. <laughs> well, not quite, a, but like. Well, no, no. <laughs> I mean, not quite a unicorn, but, oh, yeah. you know, like. Back yeah. then, but yeah, it, that's a unicorn in Chicago. But more importantly, she was an eleventh ward Republican. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's like 
a, a pink unicorn. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Well, my, the legend, anyway, back to the jerk. Yeah. And so the night of the election, uh, we, we got like a hotel suite at the mm. Hyatt with her election team to watch the results. And yeah. They left me in a room with another kid my age. And, <laughs> and that was the first time we ever saw uh, R-rated movies on a television in a hotel room. If you watch a movie in a hotel room, that was like huge. And, yeah. Uh, we, the only thing that was on was The Jerk, so we just watched it uh, like six times in a row. From <laughs> like well, this has been eight be- o'clock at night before like, cable, where cable was just starting. That'd be before cable. That I would think be before, yeah. You're in a hotel, and somehow they have some sort of they have feed some kind of deal. Yeah, and they're able to put pay per view movies on there, and it gets put on your bill. Mm-hmm. So I watched The Jerk like six or seven times in a row. <laughs> so I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. So I was a big stand-up fan. Yeah. Um, and and I still I enjoy the occasional stand-up. I don't seek it out so much. I think Louis C.K. is probably my favorite stand-up yeah. of of the new, of the most recent. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I was an Eddie Murphy fanatic. Okay. Yeah. When I was a kid. I mean, just I, mean, I still am a, still a fan. I mean, he, his career has kind of gone in a weird direction and you know, kind of grossly commercialized Hollywood schlock. Although, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen Dolomite? No, I didn't see Dolomite. It's pretty entertaining. It's all right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A departure. A little bit of a departure. I mean, he's still right. playing kind of an outlandish character, right? But it's Dolomite, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm a year younger than you, but yeah. so, like, Eddie Murphy, I remember being as a huge, huge thing. And oh. I didn't, yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up with stand up and I didn't grow up in and, America. Uh, <laughs> but, what's his name? Uh, uh, Andy Kaufman. That was a. Yeah. Big Andy Kaufman fan as a kid. Big, big, big. Okay, yeah. Richard Pryor or, or no? Yeah, yeah, but I just didn't have access to Richard yeah. Pryor as a as a kid growing up. You know, he wasn't on television as much. He, I mean, the the time he was on Saturday Night Live was huge. He was on first yeah. year. Yeah. With uh, Chevy Chase, and uh, so it was a big, big deal. But I I didn't have that kind of access to Richard Pryor. You know, he you know, he, he didn't. I remember it so, somewhere early on, somebody was, I guess, more in the know or something, pointing out like the difference between Richard Pryor's humor and Eddie Murphy's humor. How Richard Pryor was so based on like a pretty extreme life experience, whereas mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy was a a kid that watched TV. Like yeah, you know, it, it uh, was a huge departure for it's just a I huge for African American community. Yeah, between the, yeah. the two, maybe most Richard Pryor prominent grew up in a. Awful. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, definitely had like, see that pretty wild JoJo Dancer, he, like yeah, the, Jojo the kind of fictionalized version. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, wildly different. Eddie Murphy, I think, don't quote me, but I think grew up in a pretty stable, semi, I think so, semi suburban, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, home, and you know was like chaperoned down to do stand up uh, in the city when he was a kid. You know, yes, yeah. uh, obviously, Mr. Pryor, and that was even was quite different. Way back then, like held, there was a certain segment of whoever, like critics or whoever, the know-it-alls were that would hold it against Eddie Murphy because he wasn't "quote unquote" as real as you know Richard Pryor. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there, there, that that was a thing, and then you know there was that whole disconnect. You know, like Eddie Murphy was a big uh, critic of, not so much critic, but he definitely went against the grain by, by not embracing Bill Cosby and right. you know, making fun of Bill Cosby, calling him up and 
busting his balls about doing blue. And then that's so ironic now to view uh, uh, Bill Cosby's sanctimonious, uh, you know, chastising of Eddie Murphy's well, thing- inappropriate behavior. <laughs> now that we're looking at through it. Yeah. it through the lens of, of uh, <laughs> he turns out to be uh, Hannibal Lecter. He turns Lecter. out to be <laughs> fucking a monster. Yeah, of an actual monster. Yeah. And I'm watching, uh, you know, talk about your your childhood icons and semi-idols. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was a kid, I watched, uh, what do you call it? The Cosby Show, like everybody else, and loved it. And loved, you know, it was just really? a great, you know, mm. family sitcom. You know, was, how old was I? 15, See, I, years I thought old. he was a, kind of a sanctimonious dick on that. Uh, what I what I really loved was Fat Albert. Oh yeah, like you know, which yeah, is earlier, a, but like, way younger for Fat Albert. But no, I but it was Fat reruns Albert. on Saturdays. Yeah. At least where I grew up, they would show oh, no, Fat I, Albert. Yeah, I grew up watching, and I loved Fat Albert. Me too. Uh, I still love the music from like there's that soundtrack from Fat Albert. I think it's Herbie Hancock. It's great. Yeah, it is. Herbie yeah. yeah, and he, I mean he. Yeah, I mean, Cosby brought up and advanced the careers of many, many people, despite well, being a fucking monster. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's that, uh, that what do you call it, that uh, HBO, I don't know, was it HBO? Or the come out, we need to talk about Cosby? Yeah. That's it, really good. It's really good, and you know, I, I, <laughs> balanced is not the word, because you can't yeah. balance yeah. The, the atrocities of a monster, but... There's a lot in there about like wow he really he did this and he yeah. did that and he did yeah. this and it was a big departure like he started out I think like many <clears throat> most any African American comic yeah. at that time with the exception of like Dick Gregory yeah. Cosby was like I got to kind of toe the line I kind of yeah. you know I got to try to f- figure out how I can fit into the this essentially you know, white narrative yeah. of stand up and in Hollywood and entertainment. And then he, you know, he kind of woke up a bit, I guess, if that's the term, yeah. as you go into the late 60s and, and, and civil rights and so on and so forth. But yeah, he always kind of played played both sides. There was always some some sort of... Yeah, he was playing it. Yeah, he a, was hu- a huge uh, conflict was inside of that guy. That's yeah. for sure he was part of the yeah. establishment. I, I, I watched about six or seven episodes of this uh, uh, Playboy uh documentary that's on Netflix and it was it's just again I mean of course growing up with Playboy and Hugh Hefner mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. having such a connection with Chicago and sure. how cool the whole Playboy mystique was and when I grew up in Chicago you know I grew up partially in Bridgeport but mm-hmm. then when my parents split up uh, my mom and I moved to the Gold Coast oh, downtown okay. Oh. So when I was about wow. So you're I was about twelve years old. The, yeah, I was about twelve years twelve or thirteen from the years Playboy old. Club? And we lived literally literally uh, about two hundred and fifty, three hundred feet from the Playboy Club. Oh wow around the corner on uh, Dearborn and Goethe. Okay. Playboy Club's on State Parkway, uh, I don't know, probably four or five doors mm-hmm. north of Goethe. Yeah. Um, but now watching this documentary I'm like, oh because yeah, as you, as I grew up, as yeah. I became educated, and so on and so forth, you know, I, I lost, I lost the illusion, mm-hmm. or, uh, or the delusion, that Playboy was not <laughs> exploiting women, and so on. So I was like, okay, well, that's horseshit. Of course, it's a exploitive of women, and yeah. so on and so forth. But you know, I was still kind of playing into the delusion that oh, 
well, but it's empowering women and yeah. women are in control. And, uh, yeah. and I was watching the documentaries, and it's just like, you know, every episode is like, oh no, oh they did that, yeah. oh they did, yeah. This. So the, yeah, that shit and that Cosby Cosby's did, in there. Too. Yeah, he but he yeah he didn't make that up. He found out how to do that from somebody. Oh you know, yeah, no, that that was some, to do, to dose well, dose women. You oh know, totally, like, <laughs> that, well, I mean, that's a big thing in, the, in that Playboy documentary. About, that's what I figured about it would be. about drugs yeah. and some of the quaaludes and and yeah. uh, you know they call they. The uh, the women uh, enabled it too within within uh, the Playboy structure, his secretaries, yeah. and his assistants, and stuff. And sure, they called the Quaaludes the Lake Spreaders. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Cosby probably learned his craft right at the Playboy Mansion. From what was there's a prominent uh, character in the not character, he's a person in the whole storytelling. It's Hef's best friend lives at the mansion. Was a full medical doctor. So yeah, I'm sure he uh, he was. Uh, Doctor Feel Good, or Doctor Whatever, Doctor Robert, yeah, at the, in, in the uh, Beatles song. <laughs> um, Prince even references uh, the Doctor in uh, Go Crazy. Let's yeah. go crazy. Well, that that Stone song, Mother's Little Helper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, but all these guys. Yeah, I mean this whole kind of cultural reckoning that's you know still going on now, but. And especially with these guys, the comedians, you can trace their history and the jokes they make. They tell you that what they're fucking doing, like Louis C.K. Absolutely talking about jerking off in front of people. Like he had that, he had that material in his act like forever. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make it okay. No, uh, but, but uh, uh, I don't. Yeah, I think most of these comedians or have the ones that outed Cos- finally when Cosby went down. I, it was another one of those, I guess, open secrets. Because he would make, yeah. like in the show, in the show, the Kamau Bell documentary, for decades he would make these Spanish fly jokes. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah they show him on Larry yeah. King and a yeah. couple other. Things thought it was, and everybody's laughing along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just kind of ignore them. Kind of, it was kind of like a what, what's he talking? About? I don't know. I don't get that part. So just mm-hmm. skip over, pretend he didn't say that. Well, who, it was uh, another Chicago comedian, wasn't it? Hannibal Burris. Who kind Hannibal of Burris was really the one that really started the, yeah, the, got the hey, ball. Need, this is fucking bullshit. This yeah. guy has been doing this or whatever. Well, uh, what's his name too? Uh, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. That was worst kept secret in Hollywood. Right. Everyone in Hollywood. As long as knew. he was making people money, they were happy to yeah, go making along. Making people money, getting them Oscars. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> fuck it. We'll just. We'll My just friend go. John uh, McNaughton, he's a filmmaker uh-huh. uh he's he he had meetings with the Weinsteins and he claims that the other brother is worse as a I've heard being. that too I, I, uh, Bob, I think the other brother's Bob worse is, is like a bully yeah whereas Harvey's you know obviously a serial rapist yeah uh yeah I don't I don't know but yeah that's it makes it hard for yeah with the the whole kind of uh stand-up or comedy scene there's there's so much baggage I guess it's unavoidable I don't know yeah, I was, I was you know, lately. I you know, I like to a certain extent. You, you know, you wonder with some of these stand-ups, like, and now is it becoming, you know, like Chris Rock addressed uh, transgender and stuff mm-hmm. in his stand-up, and it was almost like, did he have that in his routine before? Yeah. And now is it like, has it become required that you address it because Chappelle? Is kind of obsessed with it. Chappelle is obsessed and with won't trans stop people. Stop talking about yeah. it. And, that, it and, to and the point honestly, where, like, I thought his last stand-up, I didn't really laugh much at all. I wasn't 
necessarily offended because yeah. I was not entertained. I wasn't amused. Yeah. I was like, I, you're a stand-up comic, and it's like it's like the restaurant thing. Like, you know, your job is to be funny. You're supposed to be funny. You're supposed to make me laugh. Yeah, and I am so. It's so hard to offend me. Yeah. So, you know, make me laugh, and you yeah. can make me laugh. You know, well, that's my of, problem with uh, Amy Schumer. Like. I think Amy Schumer, if she was writing a position paper about the issues she talks about, I would probably agree with her about 95% of the time. Yeah, but... But she's just not funny. She can't craft it in a humorous no, way. No, she's, she's fucking annoying. And her show was funnier than her stand-up. Oh, I've never seen her show. It was all right. I just it find had, her it exhausting. Had some um, or when she was a host, be like, host, she was co-hosting some awards show, and it was just horrendous. Maybe yeah, the Oscars are making one. really, really bad off-color jokes... Like, they're just cringe-worthy? Well, they're just falling flat. Right? Yeah. Cringe-worthy is great. That's what I you know, want. Yeah? Oh, you want... I want to <laughs> You're looking for... You want Louis C.K. is kind of nonstop cringe, you yeah. know? And, and, you know, like, I I have a kid, so his whole bit with, you know, kids are fucking assholes. It was like, oh, thank God somebody's saying it. So I recently found out that, that you know, the, the Louis show that he had? Which one? The the one about him being a divorced dad, the... Yeah, the most recent one, Yeah, yeah. Uh, that oh, one, the, the first one's called Lucky Louie. Yeah, not Lucky Louie. The just the one that's yeah. called Louie. Yeah. The the wife that he's left like is went to the same art school, like grad school. She was a painter named Alex Bailey, the real person that it's based on. Oh, his real first yeah. wife. You know her? The, the I don't know her. I know people that know her. Like oh, yeah. it's just like one one person away. And she's they, they she's the daughter of very of a very prominent painter. Oh really? Uh, yeah. And does. Uh, the thing Anyone ever play on. her on the show, or is she never seen? I don't remember. She doesn't show up her. much. If she does, it's like yeah, because it's just him and the kids and whatever oh, dates he's going on. Yeah, it's got a few bits. Of yeah, shit. I think she's a fucking genius. She is. Her show's great. That yeah. one where she's raising her kids. Um, uh, uh, I forget what it's called. It's but, brilliant. I yeah. haven't watched a lot of it. I only watched a couple. It's of really, really good. She is. I yeah. just love her. Everything she does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Have you watched his uh, his uh, the uh, Horace and Pete? The, no. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, the thing set the, in a bar with Alan Alda. Oh, it's the, horribly depressing. It's so fucking. I, I, lo- I love that oh, thing. Oh god. Yeah, it's watched, the thing, It's the best thing Alan Alda's ever done. I think. Oh, I, I, Alan Alda. Is, he just gets to be an asshole racist. You know, Alan like, Alda's one of my favorite humans on the planet. Yeah. I met him once, you know, working for four seasons. Oh yeah. I, I I worked for four seasons. I probably I met unbelievable amount of celebrities. And yeah, I don't. I have like almost no bad stories to tell. That's cool. always awesome. And Alan Alda is one of them where I was just like beside myself. I was like, oh, you were, you know, because he was huge for me and growing up because my parents went through a divorce. My dad mm. wasn't around a lot yeah. for a period of my life. Yeah, you know, he was an alcoholic and you know, the divorce was nasty. And yeah. So he wasn't around for a chunk of it, and I swear to God, it's like Alan Alda like raised me. You know, I, I, his, the, the moral center of, of Hawkeye Pierce. Became, oh, really? <laughs> the kind of anti-hero. Yeah. You know, although watching that sometimes can be a little, because eh, there's some pretty... Yeah, that uh, shit, shit's a, a lot of that shit's date, very particularly dated. Particularly with women. Yeah, know, yeah. Like the womanizing, you know. Hot there's lips, wrong with it. Hot lips Houlihan, yeah. Oh. <laughs> but I told, I told Alan Alda, I was like, you know, you kind of raised me for a period of my life where, you know... Yeah. Did he claim credit or apologize? Oh no, he got a fucking tear in his eye. Oh, he did. He oh. did. So then I got That's a tear cool. in my eye. He's the nicest, sweetest man. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
So and like I was, I, as I told him, I was like, I read, I read in TV Guide when I was like eight years old. Or, no, I was older than that. I was probably in fifth grade. I read that you were a feminist, so I became a feminist. Oh, in fifth grade. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so all the girls loved me. <laughs> Which that, that's a good strategy. That was kind of a cool thing too. I didn't realize that was going to happen. <laughs> good job, Alan Alda. Yeah, fucking it. <laughs> so when did so when did cooking become a thing? Has it really always been? Really like, what's I, the first thing you can like when it was like a thing that you were going to cook right around the age of about well when I was going to become a cook well I no when it, whatever when, the, when it when for, it became uh, clear that it was like a uh, a born passion mm-hmm. was I, I was you know probably like 12 or something like that and my mom again you know my mom worked mm-hmm. my whole life she worked and uh, we, we had the funeral business growing up Oh. So she worked at night a lot because wakes are always at night. And that was back when... That was her family's business? Or no, actually, ironically, that was my father's Oh, that was your father's business oh, okay. for four generations before me. Mm. And uh, my parents got married young. My mom was uh, three, four months out of high school. Mm. She married my dad and um, had my sister nine months after they got married, had me a few years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad's family was in the funeral business. My dad didn't want to be in the funeral business. He was in the paper business, and he was a paper salesman. And mm. uh, he was doing well, yeah. and his father died, and they had no plan for his father. And his father was running the funeral home. father was running the funeral home. And, uh, Where was the funeral home? Around the corner on Archer and Arch. Oh, okay. Uh, so, you know, that Thai restaurant, Frog. Yeah. Next door to that. Oh. The Thai restaurant was the apartment my father grew up in. Oh, wow. It was my grandma's, my grandparents' apartment for 50, 60 years. Um, and when, he, when, when my grandfather died semi suddenly, I mean, he had cancer, but, uh, mm-hmm. but he went quick. It was 1972. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't know what to do. Yeah. My dad had a wife, two kids, and a mortgage and couldn't. You, the only way you could run a funeral home to this day Mm -hmm. is you have to have a funeral director's license and in order to have a funeral director's license in the city of Chicago you have to go to school for two years get your and you have to have a year of community college so it's pretty much like you have a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. Um, and you have to get an embalmer's license and a funeral director's license that's why you have to go to school for two years a lot of cities a lot of states you can just have a funeral director's license so he couldn't quit his job so they sent my mother my mother was 24 or 25 years mm. old and they sent her to mortuary school I think she was one of the first women to graduate from Warsham's mortuary school which was pretty much the only school for, for decades where is Warsham? I don't know I have absolutely no idea I southwest side maybe yeah I, I have an ex uh, my last serious ex, ex-girlfriend she was looking into going into that really? line of work uh, I yeah. wouldn't recommend it to anyone anymore no, but she was, she was a lot, she never really followed up on it because she was more into all, all kinds of out there, but like, you know, alternative ways, you know, like natural burial and shit like that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know what, though, yeah. that, like anything that's become popular, and, and, and I think there are plenty of big mainstream funeral homes, yeah. that that's an option. Yeah, but um, yeah, the point was... Although like, a yeah, lot of that's illegal. Yeah, well, she couldn't get into any of that without having that that, that degree that you're yeah. talking about you have to get uh, yeah director's license yeah so they sent them, my mom to school and, and mm-hmm. um and then uh she she took over the business and ran it with my father uh-huh. and that probably was a big step toward the divorce that ended there <laughs> that was the end of that 
Yeah. Well, and she got very interested in politics. Uh huh. And he got very interested in vodka. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the two things really led to the demise of the business. And oh, uh, so then the business ended. At the business when, ended. Yeah, we partnered what? up with Blake and Lamb Funeral Homes, which is like a multi generational mm. family funeral company that eventually sold to a huge conglomerate uh, called SCI. Mm. But my mom is 77, she still has a license. Mm. She still yeah. is on the periphery of the business and stuff. And I grew up, we grew up with the business being prominent in our lives. You know, we had the funeral home on, uh, excuse me, Archer and Arch. Yeah. We had one on Diversity in Central Park. Mm. And we had one in Palos Hills. Okay. And so like from birth in our house, not birth. Yeah. I was probably, no, probably two years old, three years old. We had two phones in our kitchen, mm. a yellow one and a black one. Oh. And if the black one rang, you had to answer at JJ Hickey Funeral Home, how may I help you? So I, I learned nice. business phone etiquette at like four. Nice. You know? <laughs> and it rang twice. So if the phone rang twice during the It's early Christmas, training for like restaurant hosting. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. How can I help you? Yeah. Phone voice. At so, a very early age. So what was the Eureka oh, moment? So, so my mom worked yeah. all the time. Yeah. And... Um, the house was always, I never, there were definitely times in my life and growing up where things were lean here and there. Yeah. Um, but I never grew up hungry, never grew yeah. up wanting. And um, uh, my mom would work at night or, you know, she would either have a funeral, you know, and that's mm. back when you did two or three nights of wakes. Mm. This is an Irish neighborhood. Yeah. So. The Irish wake. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or she was doing campaign stuff, or she was at a campaign, or she was at a fundraiser, or something like that. Different so she, kinds of wakes. Different, different <laughs> kinds of wakes. So she was gone at night. And so she would leave yeah. my sister, and I and my sister, at that point, my sister was 15, 16 years old, so perfectly capable. And How much older is she? Five. Okay. And, and then the neighborhood down the street, I mean, uh, the, the, everybody on either side of me, they weren't the neighbors, they were... We call them aunt and uncle, yeah. regardless of, of relation. So it was a very safe environment. But anyway, the house was full of food. Yeah. And, you know, my mother would leave 10 bucks yeah. or 20 bucks on the table and be like, you can order pizza or Chinese or whatever you want. Or there's, mm -hmm. there's you know, chicken in the freezer and there's yeah. rice in the cupboard or whatever. Yeah. And uh, my sister would take the money yeah. and say, cook us some. Oh, wow. And so I would start cooking. And I'd, like one of the things we absolutely loved was uh, Stouffer's French bread pizzas. Mm -hmm. So of course those yeah. you just take out of the freezer yeah. and put them in the, sure. oven, in the, yeah. in the oven and you know, yeah. they're done. Well, I think it was the revelation was that uh, we ran out of those yeah. and the grocery store was too far to walk to mm -hmm. and the convenience store that used to be on Hillock uh, mm. didn't have a freezer section so they didn't have Stouffer's French bread frozen pizzas. But they had French rolls, and they had ragu tomato sauce, and they had cheese. Ah. So I went over to the dime store. To make your own Stouffer's. And I made my own French bread pizzas. And my <laughs> sister thought I was like a fucking genius. She was just like, <laughs> I cannot. It looks like the box. It looks you yeah. made. Yeah. This thing that we've been buying for our whole lives and eating, yeah. you made it from scratch. You're yeah. a fucking genius. And that was it. So then I started, you know. 
taking the Cornish game hens out of the freezer and then watching Julia Child and deboning them and taking wow. the stovetop stuffing and stuffing them and roasting <laughs> them whole and then making my own shitty gravy out of bouillon cubes and learning how to make roux off of, you know, the frugal gourmet and mm. Julia Child and everything. So now I've got like uh, my own gravy and raising the cover, you know, jazzing up the Chef Boyardee raviolis with yeah. granulated garlic and dry oregano. And, yeah, so it's, it all started at home. And then when my parents finally decided to divorce, my mom wanted to How old were you again? When, when they that? divorced? Yeah. 14. 14, okay. Four, 14, yeah. When they um, finally decided... So now we're like in the mid-80s or something? 83. Yeah, okay. They yeah. decided to divorce, and my mom... And it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, they split up in like 79 or 80. Uh, and that was a big deal, because they were big in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the funeral home across the street from the church. The church where we'd all gone, you know, the school, it's all gone now. Yeah. On right at, where that retirement home is on Archer, Archer mm-hmm. and Arch. Yeah. That retirement home was, the, the, the convent is still there. Uh-huh. So that building next to the retirement home that's like three stories high, yeah. that was the convent. Then there was a church, and there was a substantial parking lot. And then there was the school, or the, the rectory, and then yeah. the school. Mm-hmm. So we all went to the same school. I had the same first grade teacher as my mother and father. Mm. Oh, um, wow. And so our whole life was kind of bound up around that yeah. church yeah. and our funeral home. And, you know, between you know, every funeral was at the church. Right. You know? So the priests were in and out of my house as a kid, you know, yeah. drinking Cuddy Sark with my dad at the kitchen table. And, yeah. And I had a lot of good experiences, you know, for the most part with the priests. I mean, yeah. I never had any of the sad, disgusting bullshit that mm-hmm. happened in the Catholic Church. Um, I, I, you know, on the, on, on the opposite, I had really good experiences. I mean, That's great. I'm definitely... <laughs> I mean, great for you. I'm, defi- <laughs> I'm definitely an atheist. I definitely yeah. don't ascribe to religion whatsoever. So your parents didn't push religion no, on you? No. Despite being... Absolutely not. No. Yeah. The whole church thing and the religion yeah. thing, and there was a there were two priests that came through this church from India because there's a decent yeah. Catholic uh, uh, community in Bombay particularly, mm. and there was this one priest, Father Rudy, who yeah. was like so involved in our family. He yeah. would babysit us from time yeah. to time. When his mother and sister came to visit him for a summer, they yeah. lived at our house. Yeah, so I like fell in love with Indian food when I was yeah. like eight because they were cooking all the time for mm. a whole summer. Um, so I had really good experiences. You know, yeah. I, no, no, my parents didn't push it because my parents, even though they were born and raised in it, yeah. they weren't they weren't like strong, you know, true believer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the whole church thing was intertwined in our lives because it was business. Yeah, right. It wasn't, you know, because we were devout Catholics. It was, you know, these were business partners. Sure, yeah. Uh, Oh. That, that's interesting. So when we, my parents got divorced, and um, my mom, my sister was away at uh, what do you call it? college in mm-hmm. uh, Champaign, and my mom said, "Where do you want to go? Because I'm giving your dad the house. I don't want to live in Bridgeport anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm sick and tired of this neighborhood and a small-minded, small-town bullshit, and everybody talking oh. behind my back because I divorced your father and took the family business and mm. let's get the hell out yeah. of here." And for a brief time. Uh, we moved above our funeral home in Logan Square in 1983. Oh. <laughs> that sucked. 
Oh, that <laughs> why did it suck? Why did it because suck? Because Logan Square in 1983 yeah. was not cool. Yeah. was not fun. And I would just get chased home by Puerto Rican gangbangers pretty much every day. And then I didn't discover the L until six, <laughs> you know, four months into our stay there. We only stayed about a year. Oh, okay. And then uh, my mom was like, okay, we're, the funeral, that, at that point, the funeral business fell apart. Uh-huh. And uh, my dad was taking everything over and getting and selling off the assets, and that building was the one of the assets, mm. which is a shame because it's on the corner of Diversity and Central Park, uh-huh. a whole corner, yeah. funeral home on the bottom, and mm. three apartments above. Fantastic. Anyway, my mom said, "Where do you want to live?" I said, to "Downtown, Gold Coast. That's uh-huh. fun, yeah. clean, safe." Yeah. You know, although safe. she was already down there, or no, no, no. she. She just decided to live no, down there? No, I decided. Oh, she let me decide. When they, she, she said, like, she, pick she a neighbor? She said, where do you want to live? I wow. Said, I want to live downtown. And how, and how did you decide as a 14-year-old? Why did Because we would that? go there often and hang out, you know, oh, really? in the Gold Coast, uh, you know, for whatever, you know. I mean, that, you know, when my, my when, when the whole family, the nuclear family unit fell apart mm-hmm. um, on holidays, uh Thanksgiving, Christmas. My mother is a horrifically bad cook to this day. <laughs> yeah. Horrible cook. My yeah. dad cooked. My dad, we, he didn't cook much family meals, but he yeah. did the occasional, but he always did the holidays. Always. Yeah. And my mom, oh no. And so when Thanksgiving rolled around, it was like, okay, where are we going to go? What are we going to eat? So we'll go to the Ritz Carlton. Mm. You know, or we go to the, the, the you know. So she likes to go out hotel. to eat. She loves to go out yeah. to Loves. So that was another yeah. formative thing was that even, you know, again, my parents, from my earliest recollection, they both were working. My yeah. dad was a salesman, yeah. working all day into the evening sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. sales dinners, sales lunches. Yeah. You know, I always said that the, the three martini lunch for my father was the seven martini lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mom working all the time. So a lot of times we went out to dinner as a family unit and then that just continued. You know, my dad was never much of a cook, so my dad, till the yeah. day he died, went out to dinner. Not till the day he died. The last two, three years, he started yeah. to slow down. But yeah. until then, he went out to dinner every night. Yeah. Every single night. He either went, yeah. you know, he kept it casual and went to Huck Finn's or... So or, he stayed in Bridgeport his right whole life? Street, his entire oh. life. Never lived anywhere yeah. else. Uh, one brief period uh, during the divorce, he lived in that funeral home. Mm. Logan Square oh, for okay. about, a year, yeah. about a year or two. That's yeah. when he got sober. Mm. He, he said he, he he drove home one night, yeah. and then uh, the next morning, got dressed, suit, tie, everything, yeah. went downstairs, went out to the car, and was just like walking up to the car, and then came around the car to the uh, passenger side, and the entire passenger side of the car was gone. Yeah, and he had no idea. Yeah. How. <laughs> that's like that, that great that reminds me of that great sequence in Wolf of Wall Street. Totally. Where, when that happens it's the version that oh. he, he imagines and then he sees his his beautiful car just ripped to shreds, you know, like perfect. <laughs> yeah. That, and then my dad went into rehab that day. Wow. Yeah. Called nice. his girlfriend and said and he had been thinking yeah. about it yeah. and talking about it, I think. He said it's a scared straight moment. But he called it was he called his girlfriend and he was like, Come get me. I gotta go and yeah. he went to rehab and he Shit, that was 1983. No, that was 81, 82, somewhere mm. in there. You're like 82. Yeah. And he never had a drink again. Died in 2019. Never, never touched alcohol. Again. Yeah. Ever. 
Well, smoked they're... four packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. Drank three pots of coffee a day. To the end. To Til the day he died. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, some people are just genetically predisposed. They just can't. Yeah. That's not a substance that agrees with them. Oh my God, I can't. <laughs> I know so many fucking alcoholics. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, so. I, I feel so lucky I that I come from generations. Yeah. All of the, all of my, with the <laughs> exception of my father's, and I think it's because. My aunt uh, Rita was a mm. late in life baby, and I think I think my grandparents were in their forties mm. when they had her. Yeah. So she is twelve or thirteen years younger than the youngest kid yeah. in the family, and they yeah. had six six brothers and sisters. I think mm. that's the only reason she's still alive. Yeah. Because the rest of them, with the exception of my father, drank yeah. themselves to death. Yeah. My my parents had an oops baby like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, my, my baby brother's 18 years younger than oh, me. Shit. Same parents. Wow. Yeah. So That's a big gap. Yeah. How old were they? Uh, 42. Yeah. That's it, was a, it was the yeah, outer edge. But, uh, yeah, had me when they were 23, had him when they were 42. That's yeah. Great. Isn't that insane? So you're almost 20 years old. Yeah. Born. Yeah, I'm old enough to be his dad. And then what's your relationship like? We're, we get along really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is not, there a paternal aspect to it, or are you just the big brother? Uh, I guess. I mean, I wasn't... So, he was born, and my parents moved to a bigger place in, in Brookline, Massachusetts, yeah. where they still live. They they got, like, the bottom half of a two-family fam, home, because they needed more room, because yeah. he was coming along. And that was my senior year of high school, so I only lived in that house for, like, six months. And then I left. So, I... I missed a lot of the first few years of his life, and it's one of the reasons I stupidly moved back to Boston after graduating from the Art Institute in 93. Uh, that was a mistake, but <laughs> that's when I started driving a cab. But, uh, but I wanted to be, I wanted to be around him, yeah. Uh, no, we get along really well. Uh, he's, yeah, he lives in L.A. Huh. Yeah, he's, he's done very well for himself. In the arts? No, no, no. Nope, he's <laughs> he's got a crazy job. He he does he's a like a political consultant. He consults. He he does uh, basically, you know, he does like propaganda for the state of Israel. Interesting. Things. Yeah, which is a thing he got into when he was in school. Are you Jewish? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you told me that. Told That's me. okay. Is he as uh, fluent in Russian as you are? No, uh, because he was he's the only we one of us there. Yeah, he's the only one of us that was born in America. I have another brother that's like three years younger. We're both. He was four when we came, and I was seven when we came from the Soviet Union. It's no, still surprising though at seven that you still are fluent and can read. It. Yeah, it's that's. I, I mean, it's been an effort, and the and there's been gaps. Like I only went to part of first grade in the Soviet Union. My uh, my wife's uh, my wife's sister is. Eight years, eight years older than her, and mm. came to the U.S. when she was six or seven mm. from Okinawa. Mm. Didn't speak a word of English. Yeah, and does not speak a word of Japanese now. Yeah, not a word. That's not surprising, and it, it depends. I think on by the time she was ten or twelve, she didn't speak a word of English or a word of Japanese. It depends on what her family was doing. Well, she was immersed in. in small town Wisconsin with mm. a, a Japanese speaking mother yeah. who was rapidly learning English and everyone around her speaking English. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, weirdly, like when we came, there was not a Russian speaking community, not much of one where we were. Uh, yeah. Uh, after the Soviet Union fell, it, it, there was a flood of them. Oh, but sure. uh, I didn't grow up, I didn't have any Russian speaking friends growing up. Uh, I just had my parents and some of their friends. But yeah, other than that, it was full immersion into English, you know? Yeah. I was in ESL for like a year, maybe. But, you know, when you're seven, you're just a sponge. Sure. You absorb everything. Absolutely. But the fact that the Russian state is, it, it's kind of, it's, it's unusual, I think. I think I have a more of an aptitude for languages than oh, some other people. Yeah. Uh, like yeah, my, you could easily still have an accent if you didn't have an aptitude. I, I think, I think uh, people, like if you're a teenager and you come, it's almost impossible yeah. to shed the accent. But if you're still like under 10, most people don't have one. If, unless they move to a community where they can keep speaking their native language, yeah. that's what helped me. Yeah, you get that a lot. But like, work. say, or... Immigrants from other places. Say you come from Mexico, and you have a whole infrastructure in a community where you can only, where you can survive speaking Spanish. Why would you need English? Yeah. Like if you can get by without it. Well, yeah. I I didn't have that choice. You know, so it just depends on where you land. So if your uh, sister-in-law had landed in a place that had a big Japanese-speaking population, yeah, it, it, it would be very different. Yeah, it's case by case always. Yeah. But yeah, like my my other brother, my middle brother, uh, he has a lot less less Russian than me, uh, but he was younger too. Uh, I think my baby brother can understand it and can sort of talk. I, I don't know how much he uses Russian anymore, but I mean, when oftentimes, like when he talks to my parents, you know, they speak in Russian and he speaks in English. That's that's very common with immigrants. Oh yeah, yeah immigrant true. families. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, with me, it, it stayed somehow. Uh, despite, I mean, I think when I was a kid, I was really trying my my hardest. You know, you want to fit in. Yeah, I, want, yeah. I wanted yeah. to be a fucking American so bad. Oh, sure. And I just never made it. <laughs> I never fucking made it. But I can pass. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I look like one. And Sound like one. Yeah, I sound like one. And I don't even look or sound like a Jew. So it's like, <laughs> there's all kinds of Whatever us. Whatever that means. Uh, it uh, that's a whole other fucking can of worms. Yeah. So yeah, the thing that my baby brother Max does with with Israel, it's really curious. So he he uh, became friends with a bunch of people at UC Santa Barbara, where that was like a a thing. And it's not a religious thing either. It's like more of a political thing. It's like it's it's about how how that country's like portrayed abroad. Like yeah. he, he travels around. And speaks to young people, like, to basically, it's counter propaganda to like the, do you know what the BDS movement is? It's, 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 it's a thing to uh, boycott Israel because it's considered like an apartheid state. By well, I mean, I know that just, sentiment. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that it had a particular. Yeah, it's name. Uh, uh, boycott, divest. Uh, I forget what else. Something. Something, yeah. I, don't know, I just always thought of that as anti-Zionists. Yeah. There's a lot of different stuff, but there's a... So, the, the, the non-profit that he works for is, like, counter to that. So, they do propaganda the opposite way. Oh, okay. And he's very... Like, if you talk to him, I couldn't do justice to what he's doing. And he's very thoughtful. He's not an extremist, you know? 
I mean, you know, you'd always kind of heard of the, you know, the not so much anti-Israeli mm-hmm. sentiment, but the Israeli criticisms in, in Europe a little bit mm-hmm. here and there. But it's really taken hold in the millennial generation. Mm. I, I hear it a lot from millennials. Yeah. Who have struck, and, you know, a few of them really have no concept of no, they, history or context. And they're repeating and they're, talking points. And they're repeating talking points. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, no, it's a, that's a, it's a very, very complicated place and a very complicated issue. Absolutely. And there's a, I mean, I've been to that country a bunch of times because my mother's parents, it was their lifelong dream coming from the Soviet Union to move to Israel. Did and they, they got to, yeah, they did. They both died there during COVID. And unfortunately, oh, my mom wasn't able to go bury them. That's terrible. Yeah. Uh, what city do they live in? Jerusalem. Blood got side of. Yeah, but it's it's a very fraught place, and it's a place that uh, forces you to choose sides in, in very black and white ways that oh, yeah. I was never comfortable with. And, I mean, it's a point of contention with between me and my parents all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're a little more balanced, and they're very pro Israel. Yeah. Pro, yeah. Pro, well, what pro happens. Pro Israeli state. Yes, uh, unquestioningly, uh, which is, that's my problem with yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, it's not perfect. Uh, but if you go to the, there, you will find every, the whole spectrum of people debating. Oh, I yeah. mean, they're Jews, so they like to argue. You know, like, they in debate, that's, that's kind of like the ethnic, that's uh, people of the word. They want, right. they want to slice and dice it, you know, every which way. And you'll find every kind of view, along the whole spectrum. But uh, in the, the case of my parents' generation and that kind of the immigrant experience. You find this in like the Cuban community, people that came from the Eastern Bloc, they swing way to the right oh, when yeah. they come here. Uh, and that's what happened to my parents. And Venezuelans, it's, Cubans. It's really fucking unfortunate. Uh, and they just do not see it. They don't see the problem, you know? And I'm stuck somewhere in, in between. Well, they're so terrified uh, of socialism. Yes. Um, Based they on, literally see red. But, Any, but, they, but they, they, yeah. they confuse socialism with totalitarianism and you know, they also, dictatorships. They and, also don't see the nuance of where, like, saying socialist in America is a very different thing than saying socialist in Russia. Right. Like, what the past was and what it means. Socialism here is basically the only honorable position, I think, at this point. Yeah. Practically. Yeah. I mean, it I was mean, fascinating. Because it's a counter... It's a counterweight, a very weak counterweight to the like to capitalism, which is runs rampant here. You know, yeah, it's stupidly it, it unchecked. Fascinating <laughs> the effectiveness of the Republican strategists down in um, Florida and mm. so forth, really going after those Cuban and Venezuelan voters. Oh, sure, and painting this picture, and then also Eastern Europeans, like Russian and Polish and yeah. Ukrainian immigrants living. Yeah. All over the U.S., just Joe Biden, they thought was you know Stalin. <laughs> right. It's like, are you fucking kidding? How did they effectively paint that picture? Yeah. Because that is like this just middle of the road Catholic, like ah, God, un- yeah, Uncle Joe, <laughs> Uncle Sleepy Joe. Joe, Sleepy, you know? yeah, huh? Yeah. It's fucking Joseph no, well, that's Stalin? that's that's poli- that's the that's political. They did it well. Shit. I have to yeah. Say. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, funny enough, like they, they the, some of the shit they do, like, you know, the Soviets would be proud, like the oh, disinformation yeah. campaigns. Well, you are wonder incredible. how much of it they're winning. So yeah, well, well, yeah. Well, of course, you're. you're you got to learn from the masters. You're also, <laughs> yeah. you know, at this point, you know how 
how much of it is coming from Russian influence. Who the fuck knows Who where knows, it's coming right? from? Yeah. You know? I mean, those, the, those, those pretty, pretty, it's pretty certain that Russian uh, interests have had a lot of effect on yeah. the, the political system here and the yeah. internet propaganda and the Oh, for sure. The bots and all that crazy shit. You've seen The Social Dilemma? Uh, did I see that one? I don't remember if I saw that one or not. That's pretty good. Yeah. They kind of, not predicted, but they, they uh, the, the, I think the former president of Twitter or something who was one yeah. of the panelists or the guys that they were interviewing, it, it, the last thing he said at the last, the last thing said at the documentary when they're like, you know, between all of this misinformation, yeah. Pizzagate, and yeah. all that kind of crap, and everything, they're like, "Where do you see this going?" And he's like, "Oh, civil war." Yeah. And then <laughs> six or eight months later, you have January sixth insurrection. Sure. You know, which Chris Rock touched on that pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, white people are you know, revolting against themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're going into. We're going to storm the Capitol and take the government back from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> who the fuck do you think the? You know who do you think's running it? But this, I mean, like you know, the seeds of, or like it really took root. You know, in the '80s with Reagan, uh, who you know goes up and says that like government is the problem. Like, well, who mm-hmm. the fuck is the government? You are. Like, oh, it's yeah, stop. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the 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 gaslighting. The what is whatever yeah. the great term is. For, yeah. yeah. Just completely. It was incredible. Like, you're, you, what, everything that's coming out of your mouth is complete horseshit. Yet you're getting so many people to believe it. Well, it didn't start with Reagan. No, no. It started with Goldwater. Uh, Goldwater. Goldwater was the failed. Was like, like he was yeah. the dry run for Reagan. Reagan well, perfected. What was the great yeah. term? I was watching something. I can't remember what it was. It was a really fascinating. Maybe it was Oliver Stone's bit. He, he did a series that I watched a bit of, and it was interesting because he was talking. First, he talked about uh, one of FDR's vice presidents because FDR had two or three vice presidents. <laughs> well, yeah, he was in there for what? Something, yeah, he, he switched to around. Something or other yeah. was the one vice president who was super like liberal, like mm-hmm. civil rights, yeah. and all kinds of you know, yeah. ERA stuff in, you know. 20, 30, 40 years before anybody was talking about yeah. it, this guy was, was hardcore that way, and the Democrats ran him right out. Yeah. Got rid of him. He tried to run for president, tried to yeah. found a political party, and right. fucking just marginalized him and eventually just discredited him and pushed him out. And then they were talking about Goldwater, and they were talking about the, the, the sea change in the Republican Party yeah. and how the Republican Party in New York at yeah. the 60 two or whatever at the convention was quite liberal. Yeah. And then Goldwater and the West Coast Republicans yeah. came in and were just like, nah, this is this is where we're taking this party. This is where we're going. And they said like Goldwater lost in sixty two but he won in nineteen eighty. Right. Uh, yeah, somebody He just won eighteen years later. Somewhere I heard like, yeah, the the problem with Goldwater was he actually believed what he was saying. Right. And Reagan was just, he was a presenter. He's an actor. And just like Trump. His greatest role was being president. I mean, he wasn't a good actor, but no. he was a great actor as a president. Yeah. Well, he's a lot like Trump. Where yeah. It's, you know, yeah, Trump doesn't, doesn't believe, believe anything. anything. No, no, it doesn't. Trump, Trump. Trump it's I, an empty vessel. Yeah. Completely empty vessel. Which yeah. just spews stupidity. You know. so, so back to food. 
Oh, uh, is that what no, we're here? No, no. We're, we're here for whatever. But so you move downtown, you choose. We're talking about like eating at restaurants and stuff because yeah, your yeah. your parents didn't really cook. So were you able to continue this like interest in cooking downtown within twenty four hours of moving into the apartment at uh, on Dearborn Gucci? Yeah. We that that night uh-huh. we went to dinner at my uncle's nightclub, mm-hmm. um, which is where uh, on Division, oh, okay. in the middle of the block next to the lodge across mm. the alley from the lodge yeah yeah he was a partner in a restaurant called the snuggery and there was <laughs> probably three or four of them at one point the original uh-huh. one was in edison park okay that one was in the middle of division street um there were other ones i don't know yeah and it was a um it was a like a american brasserie or a mm. brass and fern <laughs> you know kind of like a independent upscale Bennigan's kind of concept okay. to a certain extent. You know, you had the main floor, the first floor was restaurants mm-hmm. and uh, with a big bar. And then the second floor, we served uh, like brunch up there on sun- Saturdays and Sundays. But at night, the second floor had three bars and we had to like take all the tables and chairs down the stairs and put mm. in storage. And it was nightclub. Mm. So served a lot of food, but served a ton of drinks. Uh, we went there. My mother and I went there and had dinner with him. He was my father's first cousin. Mm-hmm. If you ever look at the 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 menu there with mm-hmm. the picture on it, yeah, uh, the little boy in that picture. Now you got it in your left hand. Oh. And that was his father. Oh, cool. Because that's the picture of the original Duck Inn. Yeah, and standing behind the counter is my grandma Grace. And she had six kids. One of them was my grandfather, and the other one was that little kid. Yeah. And that little kid's son gave me my first. So the first night we were at my uncle Tom's uh-huh. restaurant, I was like, "This place is amazing. This is so cool. I want to work here." Uh-huh. He's like, "You want a job?" I said, "Yeah." And he gave me a job on the spot, and I literally started that weekend. And, and you I were how old there. at this point? Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. And I worked there for two years. In the kitchen. Everywhere. Oh, like all over. The yeah, place. it was. Uh, you know, I would. I it was the greatest job. I would. Where I started in the kitchen, uh-huh. prepping. Um, you know, like grinding meat for burgers. Mm-hmm. Um, we served curly fries, but homemade. Oh wow! So I would like wash the potatoes, peel the potatoes, and then put them through a machine that attached on the big Hobart mixing machine where we made our bread, um, and I would grind the curly fries <laughs> into the buckets of water. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I'd grind the meat for the burgers and yeah. learn. You know, there was a butcher. I learned how to cut some steaks. And uh, then I was in the basement prep room, so uh, we used to make shots in batches. So mm. it'd be like you know, make like a five-gallon bucket of uh, kamikaze, oh, okay. five-gallon yeah. bucket of of sex on the beach or or watermelon shots. And, and so I'm there prepping, and they're like, hey, here, here's a list. Make these." So I got to get a case of vodka. So were you in high school already? Or oh, yeah. you started high school? I was a sophomore in high school. And were you still going to school over here? Or yeah, the oh, South. Even though you, you, were, you yeah. were living downtown, but you'd go to school it was, it was. But you know what? I, I walk out the apartment door on Turbor and Goethe. Yeah. Walk one block to Division, yeah. one block to Clark, get on the red line, and get off in front of my school 15 minutes later. Right. So I could get to my yeah. high school. Yeah. 
faster from my mom's apartment than I could living in Bridgeport. Right, because you're in Bridgeport, I'd have to walk train, to Archer, yeah. get on the bus on Archer, take the bus to Halston, get on the bus at Halston, take the bus to 35th, get on the bus from 35th and go to 36th yeah. and Wabash. Yeah. Or at my mom's, I could walk down to the, the it wasn't called the Red Line, it was the yeah. Howard Line. Right. Walk down to the Howard Line. That happened when I was in school here when they changed to I the was colors. Gone. Yeah. I was right. gone for. Almost two decades. Yeah. When I came back, I had no idea. I yeah. still don't really know how to use the L. I don't know what the pink line. That is. a story the, the other day because it was the 30th anniversary. I don't know what any yeah. of this shit. It's is. the 30th anniversary, like like last week. Right. And there's an article I think in Block Club or somewhere about like when there's still people that don't. No, I don't know. know. But it's I not left, the Ravenswood line. I mean, I essentially yeah. left Chicago yeah. in '86 okay. to go to college in Wisconsin, okay. and I came back. Yeah. A lot, and I would work summers. Yeah, and still at that snug the snuggery. No, or no, no. When I, when, I, I, when I went away to college and came back, I worked um, primarily through college. When I would come home for summers and holidays, I worked for a man named Steve Lombardo, and uh, he had a restaurant. He had been part of a group of guys, and mm-hmm. they had a bunch of restaurants, and they split up, and he wound up with a restaurant called Sweetwater, and he ran that for a few years. And then uh, decided to take money from all the guys who hung out at the bar mm-hmm. and uh, turn it into a steakhouse called Gibson's. Right. He he was here for dinner last night. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, he's cool. He's a very very close friend of mine. And it was funny because like I worked for him for two or three years, and you know he was kind of he was a he was a bit of an absent-minded yeah. professor back then. Mm. Yeah, he was a little kind of aloof and kind of hard to read and wasn't terribly present at Sweetwater. Yes. Yeah. He, yeah. he was Where was Sweetwater? Where Gibson's is. Oh, where Gibson's yeah. is? Oh, okay. Yeah, he fucked that. He paid, I think up until about 10 or 15 years ago, he was paying about five grand a month in rent. Jesus because it Christ. was, yeah, it was, the, yeah. it was the 80s. Yeah. And then when, when, yeah. when he opened Gibson's in 80, 88 or 89, mm-hmm. maybe 88, um, Rush Street was at one of its lowest points. Oh, okay. I mean, it was, it was yeah. just yeah. A lot of those businesses were empty. Mm-hmm. They weren't, you know, uh, it was seedy as fuck. Yeah. You know, there was no, there was no, nine hundred mall. There was no yeah, Four yeah. Seasons that was right. under construction. It opened right. like a year or two later. Yeah. The neighborhood was just in a real flux. I mean, yeah. I have very vivid memories growing up in that area, working at my uncle's bar. Yeah. Hanging out on Rush Street when I was 14, 15, 16, yeah. 17 years old and went to college. After that, yeah. I could write five books. Yeah. You know, it was very catcher in the rye. You know, I'm sure. drinking scotch and sodas and jazz bars when I'm 15 years old, wearing a tweed jacket, trying to look like I'm older. And Rush Street. What's over there? Mr. Kelly's. Mr. Kelly's. That yeah. was Sweetwater. Oh. That's that space. Oh, that's the same space. So, okay. So Mr. Kelly's became Sweetwater oh, in the seventies. Okay. I didn't know. I knew it was right around there. I didn't Gibson's. know. I didn't realize it was so all Gibson's the same space. Is Mr. Yeah. Kelly's. Oh. Yeah, I used to have a great jazz album yeah. that had a picture of Mr. Kelly's on the front of it. But yeah, that was. There's a documentary was, a year or two ago. Yeah. You see, yeah. I haven't watched it. It's okay. It, it, it's all right. It's not very good. It's not a great. I mean, it's very low. They had no money. Right, they yeah, they had no money. What they were doing. Um. I mean, it's worth up, watching for the. I mean, it's like a slideshow, can like a. Yeah. It's fun for that if if you're interested. But they didn't interview the right people. Yeah. They should have interviewed me. I remember mm-hmm. when I was working in Sweetwater, going in the back office and finding all the files and contracts from Mr. Kelly's. Yeah. We found like 
Barbara Streisand contract from 1961 mm. where they paid her $250 a week for like five shows. The Dick Gregory <laughs> documentary is good. It mentions yeah, it's that's a, that's a really good one. It's an excellent documentary. Like, I have seen. What it. an like talk about a fucking pioneer. Like oh, that yeah, guy was, was just amazing. he was just by himself. Like yeah. and like to the end like getting into a weird problem like just like his own guy but like yeah. to the, <laughs> blessing and a curse you know but like totally just a, a unique individual <laughs> Rush Street was awesome back then though. Yeah. I mean, it was so, dirty bookstores and peep shows right and junkies I, and I had a job I had a job when I was in art school one summer at a newsstand that was what street would is it Elm or like it's one of the the cross street you know where that that uh, Ashkenaz the Ashkenaz Deli was on Cedar maybe it's Cedar next next practically next door was a news like a news stand kind of thing okay which is basically primarily it was the early 90s it was a place for guys to get their porn magazines but it was a newsstand it was yeah. owned by family and that wasn't uh, that wasn't on state and division no it was on the side it was it was off of uh, it was off of Rush Street it was a cr- uh, well Rush ends yeah, yeah. at essentially no. Cedar at state yeah. let's see that's the, the, that they call it Viagra Triangle. Yeah, the Viagra Triangle. But so on the on the northern end, of, yeah, yeah, park yeah northern end of it. So the nor- northern tip of that, there's yeah. a, is that that's Cedar Street, right? Yeah, that's Cedar. Okay, on that block, there was a newsstand about middle of the block. Huh. Uh, in the early '90s, I bought my porn magazines at State and Division because you're classy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> because they sold them to me. Yeah, <laughs> there right. Were places that wouldn't. Sell no, them. but I, I worked just for like a couple of months for this. This, it was a family-run place, and they uh, would not let me have any response. I barely could ring up things. You know, they weren't letting me do stuff, so I just started stealing from them. Uh, and they fired me, but like they claimed it was because some like longtime employee was coming back. But then I was just taking ten bucks out and going to Popeyes for lunch. You know, because uh, like you're not going to make let me do anything. Well, fuck you. You know. Uh, so that that was my one employment experience aside from years later becoming a cab driver uh, and being around there a fair amount but uh <laughs> so why did you uh what did you go off to college for uh, hotel restaurant management oh okay. i wanted to go yeah. to culinary school uh-huh. um because i worked for my uncle and then i worked yeah. at a bunch of other places which culinary schools were was cia around then that was pretty already, much or? my only option yeah. really was cia i yeah. don't know if i knew anything about Johnson and Wales, or if Johnson and Wales was really, it was around. Well, I don't know that one. Johnson and Wales is in um, Rhode Island, I think. Oh, okay. And it, it, it became a very prestigious oh, culinary yeah. school with, with several outposts. Yeah. But I don't know if it's even still around. Um, the Culinary Institute of America was the absolute yeah. penultimate. My uncle's partner, his two sons, they both. Uh, went to CIA mm-hmm. and one of them worked at the restaurant and so he was telling me all about it and I wanted to go but in the end I couldn't go because um, you, you had to be 18 or 19 mm-hmm. and there was a couple other criteria that I didn't yeah. meet and I was 17 when I graduated from high school oh, okay. I didn't turn 18 until second semester of my freshman year of college yeah. They sent me, I was a January baby, so they yeah. sent me to They sent sure. me to school early, so I was always a year younger than everybody. Mm. Um, 
So uh, a neighborhood friend who was really into cooking and was taking mm. cooking classes yeah. someplace in town uh, found out about this University of Wisconsin in Menominee, Wisconsin. And she went there like a summer mm. uh, class thing and took a cooking class there. And they were offering like, a hospitality degree, mm -hmm. hotel restaurant management. Told me about it. My sister was kind of adamant. Like At that point, my mother was remarried she had just gotten remarried she was uh in the, in the, you know in the throes of that and went on a three-month honeymoon wow south pacific in australia because her husband was the under secretary of state to george schultz ah so he kind of threw a, a honeymoon into a business or wow. work trip hmm. and uh uh my dad was trying to like not pay for college, which my mother had put in the divorce. Mm. And my sister came swooping in yeah. from college and was just like, what the fuck is going on? He's not enrolled in a university? You're going to fucking university if I She's if She's I a lawyer or a, attorney. Yeah. And she, with this woman... I think I met her out, here briefly yeah, once. Yeah. <laughs> she found out about this university. She put me on a bus yeah. to go to a, an orientation uh -huh. gave me 20 bucks <laughs> sent me to Wisconsin with my buddy yeah. I spent the night in a dorm I toured the school mm. I thought it was kind of cool and I wound up enrolled there but if it wasn't for her yeah. who knows and you went all four years or is yeah, it yeah, a I four year a, program I, I almost stayed I almost yeah. I, I, I clicked in there so hard I, mean, yeah. I graduated high school with I think a 1.8 GPA Wow. I hated school. I had no interest in school yeah. whatsoever. The the moment the bell rang, yeah. I ran to the fucking restaurant. So 1.8, is that, what is that, a D? or? <laughs> I don't even, I don't, I don't remember what they, it's pretty low. I thought 2.5 was just a C. I don't know how they yeah. let me graduate. So four, 4 is the whole thing, I think. 4.0 like, is, yeah, is yeah. straight A's. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I even, I, I really don't think I had more than, a, I don't think I had a 2.0 yeah. GPA. I was also an incredibly indifferent student. Oh, no, <laughs> I was not, I was not indifferent. I was annoyed that I had to be there. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was go and work in the restaurant and, and live the lifestyle. I mean, I started living that restaurant yeah. lifestyle. The industry life? The, the industry, industry life yeah, yeah, at yeah. 15 years old. Right. By the time yeah. I was 15, 16, I, you know, I started at my uncle's restaurant yeah. part-time. Yeah. And very quickly, you know, yeah. it's it's the restaurant business. Yeah. The turnover is insane. Yeah. This is 40 years ago. Yeah. So nobody gave a shit about this anything. This is not the foodie and pretty explosion soon, or any of the pretty shit soon that came I'm later. I'm line cook and yeah. nobody remembers that I'm 15. Yeah. And in school every day. And when yeah. I walk in the door at 3.30, they're like, you know, you could be here a little earlier. I'm like, well, <laughs> actually, I can't. Yeah. Unless I want to get kicked yeah. out of high school. Did you try to get your mom to let you quit early or anything? No, I never even thought about that. Never even thought about it. Never even considered that. I mean, the idea of not graduating high school in my between my my father, mother, and my sister would have been utter outrage. And the idea yeah. of not going to college was kind of insane too. And neither of my well, my father didn't go to college. Yeah, my father was extremely intelligent. Yeah, very well read. Yeah, read. A novel a week mm -hmm. went to St. Ignatius which yeah. is a very prestigious yeah. high school but didn't go to college and it was a uh, it was a thing for the rest of his life that he didn't go to college oh okay yeah and, I mean he was I don't know I think he he was okay maybe around the time when I, he, I reached my mm -hmm. highest level of 
success with Four Seasons mm-hmm. and then opened this restaurant. That's about the time that he became okay with the fact that I didn't become an attorney or a doctor. That's what they. That's what he was still hoping for you, yeah. even though he no, thought I wasn't hoping for it. He was just angry and disappointed that you did. And right around yeah. the time I achieved my highest level of success, he was like, "Okay, all right, this is okay. I can, I can accept this. <laughs> Not celebrate it. I can accept it." It's fun. Yeah, I he, I hear this so often. For, I feel very lucky after hearing stories like that of parents that just did not accept whatever their kids were into because my parents were incredibly supportive pretty well, my, early well, the balance is that oh, oh, your my mom mother was, oh, okay. I, 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 I've never made a misstep oh congratulations good job you're the golden child I, they should do <laughs> DNA because I might be the messiah Oh. That, that's that's my mother's perspective, you know. I'm perfect. I'm in, in, in man, this this kind of good and balanced way too, though. Like you know, very very uh, encouraging my whole life. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. like affirming and yeah. very you know, like positive. Massive yeah. love yeah. and massive. You can do anything. You're brilliant. You're special. You're smart. And then a father who's just like, well, you know, you work in a dirty kitchen, so you know, at least you make a living. Yeah. Like, wow. So for him, it was like a low class, like a low absolutely. class profession. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it was yeah. Yeah. not considered True. a educated white collar uh, yeah. um, endeavor until you know maybe I, I attribute a lot of that to Charlie Trotter. Yeah, particularly in Chicago. Yeah, but nationwide, you know, I've had a, uh, there's a really great chef, uh, Jeremiah Tower. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was he was really the chef at Chez Panisse. Um, with Alice Waters. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, yeah, and then he did. So, and then he opened a bunch of restaurants. He's still alive. Oh, okay. But he graduated Harvard with a degree in architecture. Yeah. That he never did anything with. Yeah. <laughs> and that just his family was not happy. Yeah. I mean, he's probably a multimillionaire at this point and has opened. Sure. A dozen or more restaurants and consulted on a hundred more. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, his family was never happy that he went to Harvard for architecture yeah. and then. You know, I don't know if he ever designed a building <laughs> or designed anything, really. Yeah. Yeah, mine tried for a while to steer me into something more practical, like, you know, like, whatever, architect, like architecture, because... Sure. Because you have an artistic you have well, talent. But I don't, remember ever, I don't remember ever not drawing. Right. Like, that's, like, my whole life. And going to art school was a compromise in my family because I didn't have any interest in college. Yeah. I wouldn't have ever gone to college, but it was like a way... It was like a way not to to try to it was like an olive branch some some way to try to get along with my parents who i wasn't getting along with at all well in high school but like this art school thing and i still i still sort of there's day a lot of days i think it was a waste of time art school yeah Mm. in high school definitely was a waste of time art school i could see a lot of well I, i think it all depends on your innate talent and how much like We've pushed my son into art school. Oh yeah, pretty hard at the art institute, mm. um, and he was very, very adept. Mm. But he was very much of that. This is a waste of time, and I don't need them telling me how to draw. Yeah. And, you know, but also, I think it also didn't turn to has not been his life's focus. So he just kind of fell off. But we had him at the art institute for five years. Well, well, that's the thing. At a very young age. That most people that end up in art school, at least. It, as it is in America, is is the children of like 
fuck the, the fuck up children of like people that can afford to send them to art school. Yeah. And kids that don't have a direction in life and like are into having funny haircuts or whatever or or are trying to rebel against something. Yeah. That was not the I was not trying to rebel uh I mean I was but on a personal level but not I had a pat I had a direction that I, if anything I was fighting against. I was trying to get out of it but I couldn't. Yeah. The, the uh, art, the art thing but cooking in, yeah. in in the restaurant industry has been like that for me to a certain extent because um no like you tried to do something else I've tried like, yeah I've tried to 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 get away not much I haven't tried yeah. very hard <laughs> um, very successful because yeah. because it's just like uh, um like you said I just it, I can't I can't you know I want to do other things but I can't yeah. I can't let go I can't pull away from it it's too in my in my blood too in my genes and I always think that maybe at like 60 I'll just be like or 55 I'll just be like fuck this walk away and yeah finally you know the only other thing the only, there's only two other things that I really want to do and one of them I probably would never do yeah and that's politics mm. I just like having a lot of opinions I don't really sure. want to have to do anything because I grew up in politics yeah you know, I, I grew up in I mean, the funeral business was there, but it, you know, by the time I was of a cognitive level, it was politics. My yeah. mother was my mother was deep in the business of politics, you know, because you know, she was heavily involved in campaigns and all that bullshit in mm. Illinois. And then when she remarried in '88, uh, and he was a, and he was a politician. She, her husband the, was, yeah. her husband had been a congressman mm. from Flossmoor. He was You're Polish. Right. Okay. He was a congressman from Flossmoor for, oh man, like almost 30 years. He, he only went in, he, he was a state rep when he was like 24. Yeah. And then got elected to Congress at 27. Yeah. And so went to Congress in like 1957 or something like that. And was in Congress until 80 something. Mm -hmm. And then they redrew his his district and oh. so he lost. Oh, I see. He yeah. lost his reelection after, I mean, Almost 27 years, yeah. Like that, lost his re-election. When he lost, um, his best friend in politics was uh, George H. W. Uh. Bush. So Bush was vice president at that point. Mm -hmm. So he got him appointed under Secretary of State to Schultz. Yeah, and he did that throughout the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. And then when Bush became president, yeah. Um, my stepfather was appointed the first secretary of the Veterans Administration. Oh, okay. So he became a full cabinet member. Mm. And that was a couple of years after my parents got married, and, or after my mother yeah. married him. Yeah. And they moved to DC. Uh, two or three years later, he became a cabinet member. Yeah. And uh, they lived in DC until uh, 2005 or something. Oh, they stay. Oh, they, so they stayed even. Yeah, because like, he lived after there for 30 yeah. years, and then. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, or more. And yeah. then, uh, then when, uh, after Bush, he retired. He was mm. probably 70 yeah. at that point. So he retired. And they stayed in D.C. for a number of years. My sister lived in D.C. on and off for seven or eight years. Mm. And so I was, you know, I know D.C. and Chicago are like the two yes. cities that I know best in America and LA. I lived in California for eight years, San Francisco and LA, but I know DC really well. And that was kind of like home. My, my stepbrother and stepsister and all their kids yeah. are all in suburban DC. So, mm. um, 
took so, a lot of time. So where'd you go after you graduated from Wisconsin? I came back to Chicago yeah. for like a really brief stint, like just about a year, uh-huh. a year and a half in Chicago. I got recruited by a hotel company mm. that uh, came to my college and hired like 10 or 12 of us right out mm-hmm. of college to this like, and they all went into the management training program in the hotel yeah. and I went right into the kitchen. Yeah. and. Um, Really enjoyed it. It was really fun. Opened this hotel. It was supposed to be this luxury hotel. It was called the Stouffer Riviere Hotel. Where it's is that? It's the Renaissance. Which one's the... It's on State and Wabash. Okay. So they built that... Wait, not State, State and Wabash is... Not Wabash. Wacker. Wacker, yeah. It's right. Like okay, yes. Yeah. That, yeah, I know. Sorry. It's all going away. In my cab driving days, I would know exactly. exactly right. I could also tell you the fair within a dollar or two from <laughs> anywhere to anywhere yeah, in Chicago land probably but that's all gone all that kind of shit yeah Gold Coast Bridgeport away. used to be a six dollar and eighty cent cab <laughs> when I was in high school yeah. <laughs> by the time I was out of college it was up to twelve yeah um, yeah so I went to work at that hotel uh-huh. and uh, really enjoyed it you know yeah. I opened like four three restaurants in the hotel it was really fun it so you were in for, charge of the whole, you were in charge? Oh, charge? God, no. no. Not even How far? Like what, what jobs were, were I was, like I was, a, the, the, the position I, I received was called chef de partie, mm. which means like chef of the line. Oh, so okay. I was like the lead line cook. Oh, I see. Wherever I went. Then so how far down the hierarchy is that? You got, in a, in a hotel of that yeah. size, you have an executive chef, yeah. an executive sous chef, mm-hmm. and then a brigade of sous chefs. Yeah. You know, like a banquet sous chef, yeah. uh, restaurant yeah. sous chef. Yeah. Uh, you might have three restaurants. Yeah. You know, however many restaurants yeah. you have, yeah. you have a chef. And depending on the size of the restaurant, there might be a restaurant chef and a restaurant sous chef. Mm. And then chef de partie is mm. down there, and then just a regular line cook is under that. And that was back when, you know, that that hierarchy was 100% engaged. Yeah. It was, you know, you, know, you were the... You know, Yes, chef, no chef. He answered yeah. to everyone, answered to a hierarchy. There was no questioning, no bullshitting. No, if you were late, you were fired. Yeah. If you, and that all came from France? That, that system? Yeah, the brigade or, system yeah. comes from the French Navy. Yeah. yeah. Galleys on the French boats. Right. So after, so you opened a bunch the, of the other. Uniform yeah. comes from the French Navy. So after that first hotel, there was other hotels? or No, I went, I. I I got the, I did the hotel thing and I thought this is kind of cool it's kind of yeah. fun, um, but it was kind of boring. Yeah. And so I went back into restaurants. So like I, I met a guy working at that hotel who was from Palo Alto, California, mm-hmm. and he hooked up with these crazy fucking Hungarian Jews. Uh-huh. They were nuts, but they were brilliant. <laughs> and they were opening a restaurant yeah. in San Francisco. They yeah. had opened several restaurants. They had a restaurant at one time called the Magic Pan. San Francisco, what they want, which they wound up selling for huge money. They were uh, Hungarian. Immigrants. That was a chain. Well, yeah, Japan yeah, they, was. I, I've eaten at a Magic Pan. Oh yeah, there was yeah. ninety of them. At yeah. One point. yeah, yeah. They opened like the original. Chain. They opened the original one in San Francisco. It was their concept it was a crepe restaurant. She was in the. Kitchen I think there was one in Boston when I was growing. Oh, up. I'm sure there was. Yeah. Um, they sold it to Pillsbury mm. and Pillsbury okay, opened yeah, ninety yeah. and made them like the president of the company and then sure. fired them because they were nuts. Right. Fired them from their own company, <laughs> um, and they wanted to open an American restaurant in uh, the third floor of the Coco Building at Ghirardelli Square, mm. which is a 
terrible location. But I didn't know that. Yeah. I'd been to San Francisco once on vacation uh-huh. and thought it was the coolest place in the world. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> when they offered me the job of chef of this American restaurant yeah. in San Francisco, I was like, fuck yeah. Took it. My wife, my girlfriend and I moved out there. I worked and how old, were, how old were you at 23. That's really young for... 22, 23. Yeah. I was too young and, yeah. and I was underqualified. Yeah. I failed miserably. Yeah. I opened the American restaurant. Well, and I went there full of piss and vinegar and... Yeah. and uh, confidence yeah. and one of the biggest things was uh i was i would i wouldn't say i was fluent in spanish at that point but uh-huh. i was I, I, yeah i it was no problem having yeah. a, a kitchen full of spanish speakers yeah i could yeah. navigate through the day no problem well there are no spanish people spanish speakers in the kitchens in san francisco they're all uh-huh. chinese uh-huh. so i immediately had no way of managing my brigade and different uh, different immigrant different uh, immigrant work immigrant for, work pool yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, a tremendous number of Latinos yeah. in that area, yeah. but in central San Francisco in 1992, yeah. everybody was Chinese. I'm oh, sure it's different so you now can, and, you know, other areas. So is it like mostly like a management problem, like a problem of delegating? Or? Uh, that was part of it. Like I couldn't manage the team. I couldn't yeah. get them to do what I wanted. But the biggest problem was that the, uh, I mean, the, the two biggest problems. Uh-huh. I was too young. I wasn't yeah. ready for it. Uh, Cooking wise, food wise, no problem. Yeah. But managing the whole thing was I was not yeah. ready for it. And the other thing was that the space that they put this American right. restaurant in yeah. had been a very successful Hungarian restaurant that they oh. ran for years uh-huh. and was beloved in San Francisco. They closed oh. it down for two or three years and then decided to do this American restaurant. When it reopened, everybody came in and they're like, I'm here for goulash. Like, like- Where's the goulash? I'm here for goulash and <laughs> It's like building on a gauche, you know. like an Indian burial ground. So it's, totally. it's like haunted. <laughs> you you were cursed forever. So within, <laughs> within a few weeks of opening, they're like, oh, well, we need to put some of the Hungarian mm. dishes back yeah. on the menu. Yeah. So all the Chinese cooks had worked for them before. Oh, so they, so knew they all know how to make it. Yeah. So then it just became me on one side of the kitchen making half the menu that was American. And the Chinese guys on the other half of the kitchen making the Hungarian food, yeah. which is all anybody ordered because that was the only reason anybody was coming. So I was just twiddling my thumbs. So, and what kind of food, like what kind of thing, dishes were you trying to? I was get, doing like, like, I was getting deep into American heritage cuisine, like digging deep into, you know, I, I, and I was again young and yeah. artistic and it's like, okay, I'm only going to cook things that are indigenous to America. Mm. So everything had corn. You were a locavore. Yeah, I was a locavore. Well, it was California, too. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was only going to use corn and blueberries and tomatoes and pumpkin and uh-huh. cranberries. <coughs> There's a very small number of things that are only indigenous to the yeah. United States, but that was a, the bulk of the menu was built around that. And then it was like trying to elevate. And strictly buffalo meat. <laughs> I had a buffalo meatloaf. <laughs> there you go. With blueberry gravy. I'm trying to think of the, what's really American. Blueberry gravy and sweet corn and potatoes. That was a great fucking dish, man. That and my cranberry glazed salmon with uh, wilted um, collard greens, which nobody wanted fucking collard greens in San Francisco in 1992. Yeah. Uh, now that's so hip and cool to, you know, have collard greens on your menu. In 1990. Oh, I put grits yeah. on the menu. Like, what the fuck is this? So when I was in art school here, like State Street was complete, like a dead, like a dead zone, the, the beginning of the '90s, and yeah. But what there was down, 
on State Street was a place called Soul by the Pound. Oh, I know it so well. Do you know That's that place? That's where ABC is. Oh, is that what? Yeah, okay. it's right. It's on, it's on I couldn't State remember between, what, between Washington That was like and, my favorite uh, lunch uh, place. I uh, love that Lake place. Street. It was almost at Lake. Yeah. But then, oh, it was fucking You could definitely fantastic. get your fucking I found out, I remember, there. Aaron, <laughs> I, worked, I worked on the corner. You I did? I worked on State and, and Wacker at the Stouffer Riviere. Okay, yeah, because it's just a block away. And we yeah. used to go to Soul by the Pound like on our break and bring Wasn't back it great? like five yeah. pounds of I'd go there all the time. chicken and collard greens. Yeah, but... I went there because Oprah talked about it. Oh, That's she how did? I found oh, out about it. That's okay. back when Oprah was still here and filming every day yeah, yeah. in the West Loop. Yeah, yeah. well, the name of that. Yeah. Well, and you know that hotel was a big uh, linchpin in changing that neighborhood mm. because when we opened, like right when we opened the hotel, Chicago Theater wasn't open. Oh, it wasn't open yet. It had okay. been shut down, and yeah. some you know like left to rot. Yeah. For. 10 or 20 years yeah and it opened like within a couple of months of us reopening like we did the reopening party for the chicago theater that makes sense yeah no and then state street was just but yeah skid row man it was rough it's nasty that's that's what it was well because it was shortly before they had that thing that was completely blow up in their Mm -hmm. face where they turned it into a mall yeah they 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 banned regular cars off of it and it killed it that was probably 80 yeah four yeah, I, I only read about it because I wasn't here yet. Yeah. One of my high school buddies getting arrested for driving down the middle of mm-hmm. State Street like right. on a Saturday night, yeah. drunk and fucking around and just driving down there, and that was totally illegal. So how long did you last in San Francisco? Did you? Did you? Almost three years. At the all at the same restaurant? No, or, no, no I got you fired. Oh, you got fired. Well, I didn't get fired. We came to a mutual yeah. understanding. Right. Parting we of both the ways. decided that yeah. it would specify. <laughs> <laughs> So then I jumped around to a few places. You were disinvited. Yeah. I, I, bop, I bumped around a couple of different yeah. places, and then I got a job at a hotel. Oh, um, okay. In the suburbs, because I needed a job. Yeah. I needed, I needed to make money. I was really broke. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was mm-hmm. working regularly, but, you know, we're barely making rent. Mm-hmm. So I got this job at this little boutique hotel in suburban San Francisco, well, as I, I wouldn't even say it was suburban San Francisco, it was Milpitas. It was Silicon Valley before oh, okay. Silicon, it wasn't yeah. Silicon Valley yet. Yeah. Um, so I got a job there as like the executive sous chef, and, and it was a really great environment. They really like nurtured and let me do a lot of things, and I, was, I had a lot of fun there. It was high volume, so I learned. So, and you were running that? Or no, I was the executive you, sous chef. Yeah, I was yeah. second. So you were second, okay. Yeah. And, um, and then I was ready for something new, and I wanted to get out of there. And um, uh, one of my close friends, uh, who had worked for Four Seasons here, mm-hmm. and had worked with me at that hotel uh, here at the Stouffer Hotel, yeah. Renaissance, he was down in L.A. working at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, uh-huh. which Four Seasons Hotels was running. Uh, okay. And he called me up and said, "There's this woman chef who is from Chicago." And she got promoted to executive chef at the Four Seasons in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And they just moved her to Los Angeles. Mm. And she's fired her entire sous chef staff. Um, and she needs help. I'm going to set you up with an interview. And I was like, okay. So I, they flew me yeah. from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, I walked into the Four Seasons Beverly Hills. And mm. it was just like, holy fuck. Yeah, it was just you know I walked in on a Sunday afternoon, in the middle of the middle of brunch, in my you know 
$50 suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just Tom Cruise, Denzel Washington. Right, and it's sure. Like, yeah. What the fuck? And then the chef comes out and she's like, oh, I've got a lunch going on in the back. Um, I'll come and get you and then just hang out here at the bar and I'll come mm. and get you. I'm hosting a luncheon for a bunch of ladies. Yeah. Like, okay. She comes back like 25 minutes later with Julia Child in tow. Oh. And he's like, oh, Julia, this is Kevin. We're interviewing him. For <laughs> <laughs> that's, Julia Child's that's like, great. we're locked. And I'm like, Okay. Yeah, you, you got the blessed blessing of the yeah. the queen. Yeah. So then I, you know, I went through a pretty lengthy interview process. Yeah. The woman who hired me turned out to be like one of my mentors in life. Mm. Uh, she's a What's chef. Her name? her name is Carrie Nahabedian. Oh yeah. Okay. She had a restaurant on here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She, she. We worked together for five years in Los Angeles at the Four Seasons. I, eventually, I was started off as like yeah. an AM sous chef. I was like twenty five, uh-huh. and I worked my way up to executive sous chef. And um, she left to come back to Chicago and open her first restaurant. It was called Naha. Naha, yeah. Corner of Clark in uh, Illinois. I think yeah, I, I ate there once or twice. Yeah, yeah. They were there like 18 years. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think I got to know that place because of Red Hand Bread. There was some kind of connection. They were definitely yeah, they were, a customer. Well, there was a time that Red Hand Bread like had like every, every yeah. fucking restaurant. Yeah, but, when yeah. I came back and I was chef yeah. at Ritz-Carlton, Red Hand did all my bread. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, so then I spent five years at that hotel, and it was uh, in LA. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. It was an mm. amazing experience. It was, uh, you know, uh, just the, the food I got. To, you know, the the great thing about it was, and that's when I kind of fell in love with the hotel thing was because I, I liked doing everything. Uh-huh. You know, I liked doing. I loved doing room service. I thought room service was cool and fun. You could do some really yeah. cool, create these really great experience in the rooms. Um, I didn't love banquets, but banquets yeah. was challenging and fun. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that we had like a cafe so we could do burgers mm-hmm. and, and, and comfort food and then we had the fine dining restaurant and then because because we're selling you know coffee for six dollars a cup in mm-hmm. 1995 <laughs> that meant there was no food costs in the fine dining restaurant uh, so you could do whatever the fuck you wanted oh okay so you didn't have the restrictions yeah. you have in a, in a, in a, like i have here you know, yeah like sure like yeah. keep things very tight and very controlled I could do whatever I wanted. It didn't matter yeah. if anybody ordered it or not, which, you know, yeah. they did. Um, but so it, it offered all those opportunities to be creative. And then it was extremely exciting. Mm. I mean, you know, it was just extremely exciting. You had, you know, the, the absolute pinnacle of Hollywood yeah. in your dining room every single day and night. Breakfast, right. lunch, and dinner. And breakfast, breakfast at that hotel was like... Uh, Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, David Geffen, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Oz, mm-hmm. and uh, Mel Gibson's partner, Icon Films, because at that point, mm-hmm. Mel Gibson was a, a force. Mm-hmm. Him and his partner, they, they started Icon Films. can't remember his partner's name. He was a really gruff yeah. guy. Though, that was the breakfast every yeah. single day. <laughs> and, and Katzenberg sat in the corner all day. They would all come in at certain points. They'd have all their meetings in there. And having their yeah. meetings and everything. But Katzenberg didn't have an office. So he yeah. sat in the corner table uh-huh. with a Diet Coke, no ice, with a straw. <laughs> from <laughs> 7.30 in the morning 
until three in the afternoon. Oh, that's his office. Yeah, his office. Yeah, People just coming and going, coming and going, and then and so it was like nonstop stars. Yeah, he's coming in and out, yeah. in and out. And you get to know some of them and yeah. the other ones. You know, and, and then every day at three o'clock, when the dining room was pretty much completely empty, that's when Larry Flint would come for lunch. Oh. Rolling in his wheelchair and sit mm. with his wife and his bodyguard standing behind him, yeah. and have lunch by himself hmm. every day. Did a lot of them live there or live in the hotel? Yeah, no, nobody lived in the hotel. Nobody lived in the no. hotel. No, I oh, mean okay. sometimes people would be there for a long period of time. Okay, but nobody lived there. Okay. Like Elton that John way. would take up residence for a month. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, Mick. Uh, Keith yeah. Richards would would stay for a month or more sometimes. Yeah. What was crazy is that like usually any reasonable sized celebrity was yeah. in a, staying in the hotel you knew all about. It. You know, yeah. John's in the presidential. Yeah. He'd have a fucking you know list this long with mm. dietary restrictions yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And his manager would call down and place his yeah. order, and it was sliced papaya and steamed chicken breast and all that kind of mm. stuff. And then his manager would leave and yeah. I, one time I'll never forget, Elton John literally called the line and yeah. I answered the phone. Yeah. Kitchen, what's up? And I'm like, oh yes, I'd like a plate of bacon. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this? A plate of bacon, send it to the presidential. And I'm like thinking it's room service calling, yeah, yeah. but it's not room. Like, I can see room service. I'm like, who is just send a plate of bacon to the presidential suite? Yeah. I'm like, okay. Pile of fucking bacon on the president and sent it. I brought it over to room service. They're like, what's that for? I'm like, somebody called from the presidential and wants mm. this bacon. They're like, that's Elton John. I'm like, okay, well, bring it. So the manager bacon, was controlling man. manager his. Was, his was controlling his Total, diet. Controlling yeah. his diet. But then, like, Mick Jagger would be there, uh-huh. and I would walk by. I'd go up to the pool kitchen yeah. or something and walk by and see Mick Jagger and I'd say to like the manager I'd be like, dude, Mick Jagger's out there. I'm like, yeah, he's been staying here for a month. Mm. And you I had no idea. Yeah. Because right. he was so like low maintenance. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. And so how long were you there at that one? Five years. Five years? No. And how come you left? Did you have I wanted that to um, I wanted to go to Europe. Desperately wanted to oh. go to Europe. I wanted to win a Michelin star. Mm. And Michelin was not in America. Oh, so you they had, had to be in Europe. To they didn't to come do to America. Yeah. I mean, I went to I went to Europe in '99, uh-huh. and Michelin didn't come to the U.S. until 2012. Oh wow! Yeah. Huh. So I wanted to go to Europe, and the at that time, Four Seasons was not as big as it is now. Uh-huh. So in Europe, they pretty much just had. Um, Milan, London, yeah, yeah, I think they just had Milan and London, really, and they were opening a new hotel in Dublin, so I was like, okay, I can go there because I don't have to learn the language. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Dublin at the time was uh, in the throes of the Celtic Tiger economy, Mm. so they were, you know, no one. The year that I, the year that I went to Ireland was the first year in recorded Irish history that they had net immigration, meaning more people came in the country yeah. than left for the first time ever. Um, so they were they were encouraging they were encouraging business and, and immigration. A world away from the potato famine, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they were like any business that moved yeah. there. 
at that time got 10 years tax-free. Yeah, they were you trying to get, get a yeah. visa. It was pre-EU, the EU didn't exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, so they were opening opening the hotel? They were trying there, to open, yeah. you know, we were opening a Four Seasons. And, yeah. Um, so I went there to be on the opening team as the executive sous chef. Uh -huh. Still not the big boss. Yeah. But I was only 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was 30 years old. So yeah, ninety nine. You said or 99? right, right at the yeah. end of ninety nine. Yeah, the yeah. very end of ninety nine. Yeah. Um, I think I finished out. Actually, I think I'm done with two thousand. I finished out. Matt uh, Hammer. It's a long time ago. Um, That's right around when I was delivering bread for Red Hen Bread. Ninety nine. Oh, really? Yeah, they were around then. They they started in ninety seven. Oh wow! 90, they grew that. so fast, like it was absurd how fast. Like they got way. Well, I guess I came, I came back here in 2000. Yeah, they, like late 97, four. early 90, somewhere there. Yeah, they I came opened. back in 04, yeah. and that's when I brought them to Ritz Carlton. Because I came back to Chicago from Boston to move in to be roommates with Frank, who was the hu husband of Nancy, starting right, Red right, Hen. Right. But then Frank was still working at Utrecht, the art supply store. And I got, oh, a, yeah. jo I got a job at Pearl, the other art supply yeah, store yeah, in, yeah. in the River North. So, uh, but he soon quit, on, quit that. On, uh, on Chicago, Chicago Avenue? Chicago and Frank, Franklin. That's still there? No, no. Uh, it was for a short time a, a, a neighborhood Walmart, and now I think it's sitting vacant. It was a mini Walmart. Yes, the mini Walmart. It was a mini Walmart. That was, that was yeah. the Pearl. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember our, that. Yeah. But I worked there for half a year in 97. Well, you know, Brandon and I opened a cocktail bar. No. Two doors down from that, called Oto Mezzo. No old Martini Ranch space. Martini Ranch, I dimly remember. Yeah, uh, so I never went in there. We but put a, we put an Italian cocktail bar in that space. Oh wow! Yeah, it was fantastic. Huge failure. No, but well, it didn't fail. Really. Our partnership with our yeah, downtown partners yeah. dissolved, and that was a casualty. But across the street from us was Bar Lou, uh, was a Bar, bar Louis, Louis. Yeah. and I, I was you know, I was smoking a pack a day at least then still, and we but. I would go out there for smoke breaks, and then sometimes we just run across the street and do a shot and go back to work, you know. Sure. And God, I was stealing so much fucking art supplies from that place. This is a whole other business. Wow, remind me to never hire you for anything. No, well, that's the thing <laughs> is that that would only happen. This part, partly like that that immigrant stuff looks like like I landed in a place Brookline, which is a very affluent suburb of Boston, yeah. but we had no fucking money. They wanted they. They chose that place because of the school system. Still, like the the high school there is like like one of the highest rated high schools like in the country, uh -huh. and they were all about education. Is they chose Brookline, Brookline High School. Yeah, where Conan O'Brien went a couple of years before me. Uh, but uh, we had no fucking money the first few years, you know. And I very and everybody in school had all these toys and shit, so I just started stealing. It's stole from. My parents, you know, the, my friends' parents' houses. I stole from people that would, like, stay at my parents' houses. I'd just go through their fucking wallets. Stole from stores. It's a long, long sordid history, wow. which ended with Pearl as a fucking 27-year-old. It, it, it just became a whole other job. But I was being paid six fifty an hour. I was 27. Like, you can't live on that. Uh, they were fucking. They're corporate assholes, and I didn't care. Six fifty was that minimum wage back then? Yes. Wow. So it was above minimum wage. 
minimum wage yeah, was less. Minimum was five something? Five something in 1997. Yeah, minimum yeah. wage went up so slowly in the city. Yeah. I can remember. Yeah. Like my first job was three. I, I got my first job right when they raised it from three fifteen yeah. to three thirty-five. Yeah. yeah. And then I mean, even in college, yeah. I remember uh, right out of right my first job at Sweetwater, the mm-hmm. guy who owns yeah. Gibson's was five dollars yeah. an hour. Yeah, yeah. That was nineteen eighty seven. Five bucks an hour. Yeah, but yeah, the well, I was a teen living at home, so I didn't Sure, yeah. Myself. But when I worked for my uncle, though, I made so much money. When yeah. I was 14, 15, 16 years yeah. old, and I was, because what I would do is I, he paid me five bucks an hour. Yeah. was very generous. Yeah. But I would, uh, eventually, I would set up all the bars mm-hmm. in, the, in, in, the, in the whole place. Yeah. Like, you know, I was start up making the shots yeah. while I was making burgers. Yeah. And they're like, well, go set up the bar. Yeah. Stock, the, yeah. stock the coolers with beers, put ice sure, in the wells, yeah. cut their lemons and yeah. limes, get their drink tray ready, yeah. do all this stuff, put their glasses up, you know, set the whole bar, you know, yeah. the, the four bars in the whole building. Yeah. Every one of those bartenders would come in then to yeah. work their shift, yeah. and they'd all give me anywhere from 5 to 20 bucks each. Right, sure, yeah. So of I'm course. rolling out the door yeah. with anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks on a yeah. Friday or Saturday night. Yeah, and it's 1984. That's a lot of money. 15 yeah. years old, you know. I was paying part of our $950 a month rent on our two-bedroom apartment yeah. at 21 West Goethe. I was giving my mother, you know, 300 bucks yeah. at the time. I thought that was wrong. I, I don't have that much on me now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The stealing, you know, would would really happen when either I had a problem with the place or they were like underpaying people. You know, like. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, so very soon after uh, I worked. What yeah. was it at Pearl that made you stop? Oh, I quit. Oh. Uh, I was you said only Pearl there was the end of that. It, it made me uh, uh, because the, let's see, the next job I got after that was at Thai Lagoon in in uh, Wicker Park, it's which is still there. It's a restaurant. Yeah, I was yeah. Be, became a delivery delivery driver. Uh, that was a great delivery job because they supplied the car. I didn't have a car. Yeah. Yeah, and they actually the owner taught me how to drive stick. I didn't know how to drive stick. It was a Honda Civic that they had. That was their extra car. I think it still exists. That restaurant. It's on North Avenue, just before Western, and that's where I was living. I was living at Western and Division with, with Frank, uh, and I liked those people, uh, so I didn't steal from from them. <laughs> uh, I don't think. Yeah. The, the stealing pretty much stopped at that point. But, like, yeah, there was a lot of, like, through 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 my childhood, through, like, when I was in art school, I got busted for switching uh, price tags on uh, expensive art books at Crocs and Britannos on Wabash. Oh, I, uh, I got taken down, this house detective, this big black lady took me downtown and took a Polaroid and put my photo on this, like, rogues gallery. Like, <laughs> but it... But that fucking store was next door to one of the Art Institute buildings, so I was in there the next day or next week. Like, <laughs> that was a good scam at the museum store because they didn't, have bar- they didn't use barcodes yet, yeah. and the fucking cashiers didn't care. So I'd be getting $100 books for like $15. Mm-hmm. I had all kinds of fucking scams, but uh, it's one of the things that was why cab driving suited me so well. There's nothing to steal. You know, like, yeah. there's no, you know, and I was my own boss. And it was, 
yeah, there's a lot of different reasons. Problems with authority, stuff like that. <laughs> it's a malcontent. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so in 1999, uh, Red Hen would have been open for yeah. sure. But you were in, and you were in Dublin. Yeah, I was uh, gone from Chicago from, uh, you know, like, like I went away to college in 86, didn't come back till 91, yeah. was here for a year or so, yeah. and then went to San Francisco, and I didn't mm-hmm. move back to Chicago until 2004. 2004. Yeah. And was that for a job, or? Yeah, that was, I was, so after, you know, Dublin was great because I got a lot of cool experiences. One of the, one of the things that happened in Dublin was that the, the, the ownership of the hotel. Four Seasons doesn't own any hotel. They're the management company. Oh, I so see. So there's different ownership. Every hotel has different oh, ownership. Some, okay. some groups, some people own one, two, three Four uh-huh. Seasons. Um, you know, like Bill Gates owns a chunk of the company. Mm. And uh, Prince Al-Walid from yeah. Saudi Arabia owns a big chunk of the company. Um, but like the, the Four Seasons Chicago is owned by uh, two guys, Neil, Neil Bloom and Judd Malkin. Mm. You know, and uh, the the Four Seasons New York and the Four Seasons Santa Barbara is owned by Ty Warner, the guy who started Beanie Babies. Right. You know, so they're all owned by different people. Who 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 had bu- he bought the penthouse of the Chicago Spire that never got built? Yes, he did. He's, <laughs> he's a fucking nut job. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I saw a documentary about him. Yeah, he seems like a complete wing nut. But so very, you very came back. Him. What what year did you come back? Two thousand four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, because, yeah, I delivered bread to the Four Seasons, but it would have been before you were there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I came back... No, I, I came back to Chicago in 2004. I came back to the States in 2002. Okay. Uh, to Atlanta. Mm. That's how I got promoted. So For, I, I, To another Four Seasons? To another Four Seasons, oh. yeah. I, 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 it was in Dublin, and, then I, and because the hotel in Dublin was delayed in its opening, the, yeah. the owners... Like went bankrupt and then they yeah. got the money back and then they opened. So it was very delayed. So I was living in Dublin, but there was nowhere to, you know, they, we were going through the motions of getting ready to open the hotel and the hotel wasn't opening. Yeah. So they started shipping me out. Oh. And so they sent me to London to open the second four seasons of London. So I got to open that. They sent me to Paris to help out and learn. Mm. You know, so it was, it was a fantastic experience. And I think I only worked in the hotel in Dublin for less than a year. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, there's a, executive chef opening in Four Seasons Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's yours if you want it. So I took it. My best friend from college was uh, living in Atlanta at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. My wife and I had, we were we were newlyweds but we wanted to we wanted to get back to the States. You yeah. Know, living in Europe was difficult and yeah. um, we were broke and you know getting the big job with the yeah. big package and move you to um, Was she working too? Or yeah, was she, she was working she worked for Neiman Marcus for many years. Oh, okay. Uh, she started in Beverly Hills working in mm-hmm. Neiman Marcus. Yeah. And then when we went to Dublin, she worked at a very high-end department store in Dublin mm-hmm. called Brown Thomas. Um, and then when we moved back to Atlanta, she went back to work for Neiman Marcus, got a oh, great job. She yeah. was like the assistant operations yeah. manager. Um, and then, no, she was the operations manager, I think. Yeah. Um, so the option of moving back to, to the States was, Atlanta was great. You know, yeah. we went from, you know, we went from broke our whole lives, you know, our whole adult yeah. lives broke, you know. Yeah. We lived in San Francisco, you know, that was tough. LA, yeah. we started to make a, 
a bit of a life in LA. Yeah. We started to find yeah. a way to, to manage and then we got you know, then we went to Europe where we yeah. broke again and, you know, paycheck to paycheck and mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And then got to Atlanta and I got the big job yeah. and the you know, free home loan and oh, okay. sh- you know, all the benefits and she yeah. went to Nina Marcus and they happened to have uh, a job for her and she yeah. rose up really quick. So all of a sudden we yeah. were like, you know, upper middle class afterwards. Mm. You know, in Atlanta's dirt fucking cheap. Yeah. I mean dirt cheap, the cheapest yeah. place I have ever lived in my mm. life. Yeah. And at that point the cheapest place I mean we went from this is the San early, Francisco early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, we went from San Francisco yeah. which had a really high cost of living, although yeah. not even remotely as bad as it is now. Yeah. I mean, and it got bad within five yeah. to eight years of us leaving there. It became yeah, because the tech bubble hadn't the tech really, bubble yeah. hadn't didn't exist. Yeah, you know, we, we lived in Atlanta. There was, or when we lived in San Francisco, there was no internet. Yeah, you know, I didn't right. Really get my first computer until '98. Um, so we went from poor to really poor to yeah. okay, then back to dirt yeah. poor. Then all of a sudden, you know, I'm making seventy-five thousand dollars a year, which yeah now not that big of a deal but then in atlanta i was living in a you know three-bedroom house we both had cars i've never made seventy-five thousand dollars a year but (laughs) you know it's a a different different goal different strategy different Different setup yeah yeah (laughs) so how long were you how long did you almost three years three years in atlanta almost our son was born there okay i was just gonna ask if you had any kids born there So we came back here, and and I, uh, by then my both my mother and my sister were back in Chicago, mm. and my yeah. sister was married and she was uh, starting a family, and uh, we came back here on a to I think we came back for my my nephew's christening, mm. and stayed at the Ritz Carlton, which at that time Four Seasons ran at the Ritz Carlton. So mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was staying at the Ritz with my family, and the executive chef, who I knew yeah. really well, called me and said, hey, come down to the office. So I went down to his office. Yeah. Said, What's up? He's like, I'm quitting. Mm-hmm. Going, in, yeah. going in like an hour to the yeah. I'm giving my notice. He worked there for 20 years. Yeah. He said, I'm going to tell him that you're my hand-picked success, successor. Wow. So, wow. And, uh, and that was like a lifelong dream, really. I mean, I can remember, yeah. being, I can remember being very young and reading an article in the newspaper in like Sun-Times about the chef at the Ritz-Carlton. I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And so um, I got the job that afternoon. Wow. Yeah. And they moved us here, and I was executive chef of the Ritz-Carlton for probably just about a year. Uh-huh. And then Four Seasons announced that they were going to divest themselves of the Ritz-Carlton. Oh. And that the hotel was for sale and that they wouldn't continue yeah. to run it once it sold. Yeah. And that very day, the general manager of the Four Seasons across the street called yeah. me and said, hey, you know, I know what's going on over there, but our chef here gave his notice last week. No one hmm. knows. Yeah. So you're going to come here yeah. eventually. But for a little while, you might have to do both. Uh-huh. But that hotel's going to sell, so it yeah. won't be that big of a deal. I was like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. And <laughs> so then I started being executive chef of both hotels, uh-huh. and that wound up lasting like eight months nine months and it was kind of I kind of started to enjoy it because yeah. it was it was you know it was a growth thing it was like yeah. bigger than yeah. I'm running two hotels yeah. and, and I kind of I just run back and forth yeah. across the street you know it was really <laughs> kind of fun kind of yeah. cool 
Um, but then it started to get difficult because mm-hmm. the hotel didn't sell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And the union was tough at the Ritz. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually they're like, okay, just we'll just promote your your number two at the Ritz. We'll promote him up and we'll just yeah. move you to the Four Seasons full time. Yeah. But, uh, it wasn't easy. It was very difficult. The Ritz yeah. was a very difficult place to work. You know, it was, I mean, I come from, like, I, when I worked at Los Angeles, that hotel, mm-hmm. when I got hired in L.A., that hotel had only been open for like six years. Mm-hmm. And it was L.A., it was yeah. very young, yeah. very transient, people coming and going, yeah. and it was just high energy. Then I went to Dublin, and I yeah. opened a hotel yeah. with a bunch of people that yeah. were all, like, super passionate and excited. And I went to London, did the same thing. Everybody in London, they brought from the Four Seasons Milan, because they had yeah. Philippe Stark design the building. Mm. So I got this whole other experience working with all these Italians, yeah. young and energetic. And then I went to Atlanta, and everybody was... That, they, Four Seasons had only yeah. run that hotel for a few years. It had been a previous hotel, and everybody in my kitchen was all like 20 something and super yeah. excited. And the front of house was really dynamic and everything. And then I got to the Ritz Carlton, and there were waiters that had been there for 34 years. <laughs> you know? And they didn't give two fucks who I was, yeah. what I wanted to do. They probably didn't like change very they much. Didn't like, no, they, they hated me. Because yeah. I, you know, went in, the, the, the menu in the cafe hadn't changed since 1976. And so I was like, well, we got to do this and we got to do that. And to get the cottage they, cottage cheese side or something. Exactly. <laughs> get the diet plate. Cottage cheese with a sliced tomato and a scoop yeah, of tuna yeah, salad. Yeah. That was on the fucking menu yeah. at the restaurant. And so I was like, oh, we got to do cool shit. You know, I'm a chef. You know, oh, fuck. And then their union. Every plate has a doily or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, doilies everywhere. Yeah. Actually, there's doilies still there. Um, uh, fucking doilies. I, I worked at a place that had. What a nightmare. Just yeah, sit so there now like, all of a sudden. Try to unpeel yeah, those fucking sorry. things. What so a, now, now my waiters are 60 years old uh-huh. and union. Yeah. And they're literally just telling me, I don't want to serve this shit. People don't want it. And I was mm. like, I had never been nice. spoken to like that in my life. Yeah. In my career. In my career. Never. Yeah. yeah. Never. You know? Um, so it was a big learning curve. I almost got fired a couple of times. Yeah. Came very close. I came close to quitting. Yeah. A couple of times. Like really close. Like I remember when somebody said I assaulted them. Oh. Made it up. No witnesses. Yeah. So oh, in Jesus. the end, nothing happened. Yeah. But I remember walking out of Human Resources out the back yeah. door of the Ritz Carlton and walking across the street into Carrie Nahabedian's apartment, yeah. uh-huh. going up to her apartment at like 11 in the morning and telling her I'm going to quit. And she was like, fucking turn right around and you go right back to work. Don't <laughs> quit. You make them fire you yeah. if they have to. If yeah. That's what's going to yeah. But you don't fucking quit. You go right back to yeah. work. I remember walking across her in the snow in my chef jacket. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> back to work. 37 years old or 38 years old with a kid. But my... my Mentors go back to work. So once you got out of, were able to get out of the Ritz Carlton, it got better, or like uh, when I went to the Four Seasons, it was yeah. definitely better. It was definitely yeah. more of a, a young, modern, yeah. uh, culinary focused. Yeah, um, yeah, I was able to really. Uh, and then, ironically, that's where I wound up getting a Michelin star. Oh, that that was yeah, where it happened. That's where yeah. it happened because yeah. Michelin yeah. came to Chicago in the very first year that they were in Chicago. I got a Michelin star. Mm. You said it was like 2012 or something? Or I think so. Something like that? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe 20, 2010. Yeah. 2011. So know. how, like where, at any point did, in these years, did you like have an idea of having your own place? Always. Al- you always, always, that was always the plan? Always, it was like, that was always going to be an eventuality. Moving yeah. back to Chicago, the plan was I'm going to come back to Chicago, 
as the chef of the Ritz, which uh-huh. eventually I became yeah. the chef of the Four yeah. Seasons, but whatever, come back, establish my name, establish my reputation, yeah. and then be able to find investors and open my own restaurant. Yeah. Which none of that was as easy as that all sounded. Yeah. And that all sounded like I had the plan, plan worked out, it was yeah. perfect. Yeah. No, it was far from perfect. And if the plan had worked out, yeah. there's no way there'd be a duck in. What was so what what was that plan that first The plan, plan was, was to open a restaurant on Randolph Street. Uh-huh. Or Fulton, which at the time was before there was nothing going on. The only thing going was on was Blackbird there already or no? Blackbird was there, on the but other, Blackbird was yeah. on that other side. But yeah, they start yeah, they Blackbird kind of started opened it, yeah. in two thousand one. Yeah. Um, and, but that was that other side and they were kind of a little island over there. Yeah. You know, Vec was maybe a little bit later. Point. Avec was a follow-up too, and then yeah. there was another restaurant next to where where yeah, it was, no, a, was a succession rest- of uh, to the other side of Blackbird is another restaurant. Yeah, that uh, restaurant was really popular too. I can't yeah, it, it went through a bunch of different. Went there was a bunch several, of yeah. yeah. At one point, now they're all closed. At one point, above that restaurant, mm-hmm. the one next to yeah. um, Blackbird, there was an illegal Korean bar uh-huh. that was fucking awesome. Yeah, it was like. <laughs> It was like just a bunch of Korean dudes. Oh, okay. And like they had walls made out of Johnny Walker blue boxes. <laughs> and the dude's mom was in the back making yeah. the best Korean food ever. Yeah. And you could smoke. And, uh-huh. and it was awesome. <laughs> it was a very brief window when it existed. Anyway, um, no, Randolph Street was kind of, Randolph Street had gone down. Like Girl and the Goat came in and it yeah. was thriving. Yeah. But then Marche, yeah. like Marche literally hadn't paid their rent in like yeah, six months. Yeah, I made a months. mistake. I was, I, was de- I was delivering food in 2001, uh, delivering bread. Yeah. It wasn't 99. Red Hen was already open, but I, I only briefly worked for them. It was between restaurant jobs, yeah. basically. So, yeah, it was because cause I delivered to Blackbird and to Marche and to all those Randolph oh, yeah. Street. But they were all new. They were all like, new, but yeah. by, two, yeah. by, by 2011... They were all, it was on a decline. Yeah, know? yeah. Marche, literally, they, Marche hadn't paid their rent in forever. Mm-hmm. And then one Saturday night, the, the, they closed the restaurant. Yeah. They all went home. When they came back the next morning, there was a padlock on the door. Yeah. And all their shit was still in there. That was I a remember crazy looking place. I walked in, I walked in through yeah. that space with yeah. the landlord yeah. uh, when I was trying to yeah. get my thing going. So that was the place, and that's what you wanted. And there was still yeah. uh, shoes and lockers and uh-huh. lockers yeah. checkout on the yeah. manager's desk. It was crazy. Um, so I looked at a bunch of places. I mean, I tried really hard. Oshaval was a, a mm-hmm. Euros joint. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it wasn't the street it is now. Not yeah. by any stretch. Yeah. And there was a point where it was really hot when you had Vivo yeah. and Marche yeah. and Red Light, and then it kind of died. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it was never even remotely what it is now. Yeah. And Fulton at that time yeah. was... All of there's those. probably still a meat packer. Oh, all of those there, places. Yeah. All there was was publican. Yeah. And everything was open and operating on a regular basis. Trucks, delivery yeah. guys, guys in white smocks covered in blood on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Garbage skiffs mm-hmm. everywhere. Yep. It was thriving in that business at the time, and there was very little restaurants. There was publican, and there was Fulton Market. Yeah, uh, I remember when publican opened. Fulton because, Market Lounge, FML. Because I was taking, I was driving a cab, and I. For a, year, a couple of years, I was driving that artist Tony Fitzpatrick every day. Practically, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was his driver, oh, cool. and he he had his fancy meetings. Publican was one of his places mm-hmm. that he that he liked then. So I was trying. Yeah. I had a really cool concept. 
It was a butcher shop and bistro. Mm. And I wanted to put it on uh, Randolph or on Fulton. And I, I went through successive negotiations with landlords trying to get, you know, I was like, I had a full blown concept mm -hmm. realized and I was trying to negotiate rents and all this kind of stuff and I had no money whatsoever. Oh. <laughs> I, had no, I, like, I knew how to write a restaurant yeah. concept. I knew how to yeah. write a cool menu. I kind of knew what you needed to do yeah. to negotiate a rent because yeah. my dad was big into real estate. Yeah. So I was like doing all these motions and I had no money. Yeah. I, I was just an idiot. So, so like I was getting to a point. I've heard that's an important part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 like I got to a point uh -huh. with several locations that are now other things yeah. where I, you know, in hindsight, yeah. if I had signed the lease, yeah. I would have been for the last 10 years the landlord on Oshaval uh -huh. or um, uh, uh, not Alinea, uh, uh, Aviary and the uh -huh. next. Because those are the two locations where I had the lease in front of me. Yeah. And they're like, sign mm -hmm. now and it's yours. Yeah. And I could have had Oshaval and the two buildings next to it for $12,000 a month. Mm. Which Oshaval probably spends 10 or 15 just on that space. Probably. And the restaurant yeah. next to it pays 15 and the restaurant next to it pays 20. Mm. Well, mm -hmm. I could have, that was all yeah. one space. That's one building. Yeah. I had that whole thing for 12 grand. Right. But I had no money. I was like, yeah. I can't sign this because I got to pay the rent next month and I don't have 12 grand. Yeah. So you, you just, you stayed at the Four Seasons while this I was, was at the Four Seasons yeah. while I was doing all this. While you were doing and this. And it, yeah. it was the, it was the Ocheval building deal when that felt, I finally got a partner. Yeah. And she was a vice president at Groupon and she was going to, uh -huh. she was going to raise the money. Right. And we've been negotiating for that corner, that, that whole piece of land for months and months uh -huh. and months and months. And finally, the guy it was just a guy. It was mm -hmm. his family owned it. It's just him. He and I became kind of like buddies. And mm -hmm. It was all going to be really cool. And then the family kind of got frustrated and forced him to get a real estate agent. Yeah. And the real estate agent said, okay, this, this, and this. And he's like, well, I already kind of verbally committed yeah. to this guy and I yeah. can't go back on that. And they're like, okay, bring him in here tomorrow. Yeah. And they brought me and my new partner yeah. in. And they're like, sign this or tomorrow it's gone. Wow. Well, I can't sign it because I don't have my. Uh, yeah. They're like, we can we can rent the corner. Yeah. The one spot on the corner for yeah. what you are being offered all three oh, spaces. Wow. And this and, and, and the real estate guy's like, and this guy is dumb enough to make me offer it to you. Yeah. When I can get him more than triple for the three spaces, and I was like, I can't sign. Give me some time. They're like, no, yeah. no time. And so we walked out, and my new partner broke up with me on the corner. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and I drove home, and yeah. that night I had been passing the for sale sign here and fighting for, you know, the instinct. And so it was still saying, open as the Jeff Everyone Everyone's saying you should know they had closed. They've been closed. Jeff Bar closed. Jeff yeah. had been closed for about six months. Okay. When I finally called on it. Uh -huh. They'd gotten a lot of offers, but yeah. they didn't want to sell to just anybody. Yeah. And I called on it, and I toured it. And uh, I made them an offer. They mm -hmm. accepted the offer, yeah. but my lawyer put a contingency in there that uh, that you know they are of course responsible for any liens uh -huh. on the building yeah, or the sure, licenses, yeah. and they wouldn't sign that part. Oh, so well they wouldn't sign it because the state of Illinois was trying to get uh, like two hundred fifty grand out of them for unpaid taxes on yeah. liquor or payroll. I can't remember now, and they were disputing that with the state mm. of Illinois, mm. but. If what would have happened is if they had not uh, settled that dispute with the state yeah. of Illinois, 
at closing, yeah. the the bank would have been required to give the state of Illinois two hundred fifty grand, uh-huh. and not give it to the seller. Yeah. So they're like, well, we're not going to sign that, and we're not going to yeah. go forward until we can fix this. Yeah. That took a year. Full year of and you're you know, so now we're up to what 2012 2013 or something. I took or? possession of the building, um, 2013. I, I closed on the building the two days or Monday after Thanksgiving in 2013. Uh huh. 2013. So that negotiation started in 2012. Uh huh. I closed on the building in 2013, took possession, and you're still the the. At Four still, Seasons, still the Four Seasons. Yeah, yeah. And I closed, and I still didn't tell Four Seasons what yeah. I was doing. But at the, I, I, well, I, I had to tell them within, within pretty close to when I closed on this, because in or, one another contingency that my lawyer made me put in, which mm-hmm. you know, yeah, say what you want about lawyers, but there's yeah. a reason. There's a reason when uh, actors go up at the Oscars and thank their lawyers. Sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course. Um, he made me put in there that. Uh, Closing was also contingent upon me getting a liquor license. Mm. But getting a liquor license is a public announcement. So when you go right. and fill out your, yeah. your, your that's open to the public, yeah. and uh, there used to be reporters yeah. who trolled that stuff sure. for stories. Yeah, you'd see like a, a whole pages of these announcements that, that used nobody read except for people that were interested. Right, yeah. interested. And then a lawyer would see it. That's what happened to my predecessors at the Ritz-Carlton was that they signed the liquor license for a new restaurant uh-huh. and they had to go and, and, and Phil Vitell from the Tribune yeah. called them and said, hey, your name's on a liquor license. I'm going to run the story tomorrow. And they're like, well, we haven't told our bosses. It's like, i got to run the story somewhere yeah. else. Well, so they had to go in and quit. So then I, I, was, I wound up in the same exact situation where I put my name on a liquor license application. Yeah. Once it got approved, then yeah. it was public knowledge. And then then I was going to close on yeah. this building, and then Crane's Chicago business called me and said, called my yeah. PR at the Four Seasons, who was yeah. a friend of mine, mm. and she, they said to her, "Hey, Kevin Hickey's name is on a lease yeah. or on a on a yeah. liquor license application for twenty seven hundred one South Elm yeah. Street." And she's like, "I don't know anything about it." And she called me. I was like, "Oh no, don't worry about it. That's one of my dad's yeah. properties." And yeah. So I called. Them. Person at Cranes, and I was like, "Hey, please don't run that story because you know I haven't told them." They're like, "Well, we're gonna run it. It's yeah, it's big news, right?" Uh, and then uh, the same day, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a really good guy. I became friends with him. The reporter. This was this is so old school. Yeah. Was, yeah, who's he working for? Block Club or maybe not Block Club. Block Club didn't exist. What was DNA, DNA? DNA Info. DNA yeah. Info. Yeah. Corey, fucking mm. knocking on my door. Yeah. At my house at like eight thirty in the morning oh, on a Monday. Wow! I'm in my robe. I like go to the door. <laughs> I open the door. I see the camera on his hip. That's awesome. And I'm like, can I help you? He's like, hey, I want to get your comment on the fact that your name's on. A... I'm like, no comment. Lock the door. It's <laughs> like, fuck. Got dressed. <laughs> yeah. Went into work on my day off. Yeah. I was sitting outside of my my general manager's yeah. office when he walked in. He's like, oh, this doesn't look good. Like, wow. Well. And so yeah. I had to tell him, like, yeah, you know. What was going on, and uh, I, I, I worked for three more months. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I took possession of the building, was paying sure. yeah. everything, but I was working at the Four Seasons because I, I mean, I had twenty years. Yeah, you know, I wasn't going to just yeah. walk out the door. Right. You know, I was like, I'll be here. I'm one. Also, yeah. again, 
I didn't have any fucking money. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have any investors yet. I just yeah. owned the building. And right. I was going to try and figure out. And, and so I was able to buy Brandon, this at a Brandon, loan. Brandon didn't even know Brandon yet. Yeah, you didn't know um, yet. Yeah. This was at a point where uh, you know, I could afford the mortgage. Yeah. Barely. Here. Yeah. So I just yeah. took possession, yeah. paid the mortgage, and paid, yeah. the, paid the mortgage and paid the utilities for yeah. a year. Yeah. Until I was able to open it. Um, so then word started getting out that I was leaving yeah. to do this, and it was, yeah. you know, it was in the Tribune, it was in yeah. the Cranes, it was in all that shit and everything like that. And this downtown restaurant group approached me through my, through my Billy, ex, De- Billy, Billy Deck. Deck. Yeah. Billy Deck approached yeah. me through my ex-business partner, mm-hmm. Jaina, who broke up with me on the street. Mm-hmm. I'm still friends yeah. with her. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a thing for her. Yeah. Anyway, she connected me with Billy, and Billy's yeah. like, hey, I hear you're doing this cool thing. So yeah, he's like, well, I got a cool project if you want to work on it between yeah. when you leave Four Seasons and when you do that. Yeah. And he took me to this space on mm-hmm. Clark Street, mm-hmm. right next to Frontera Grill. Mm-hmm. And it had been a, uh, a barbecue concept called Dragon Ranch mm-hmm. that opened like three months before Bub City Barbecue opened oh. next door. Oh, oops. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> then they had a little fire. Yeah. And, you know, the fire department did a fucking number on the place yeah kind of ripped out the whole middle of the place yeah and they were sitting on it waiting on the insurance money yeah and, you know paying probated rent and uh, wanted to do something in the in the landlord uh friedman al friedman who owns most of river north mm. said you need to get a, a name chef in here and do something yeah. cool that's what we want you to do and so billy approached me and said hey you know you can this space, which that space was like really very similar in size oh, okay. to this, very similar yeah. in size. Um, a little, it was smaller, yeah, but it was very similar. And he's like, uh, "Do whatever you want. Uh-huh. We'll we'll bankroll yeah. it." And you know, and it was like a consulting thing with yeah. a, it was a consulting thing with small ownership, and yeah. I would, I would be responsible for ten hours a month. Oh, and he's like, so you can do yeah. your yeah duck in and bridgeport yeah but this will give you an income he was very nice i have you know i could say a lot of things about our our relationship in the, in the yeah. three years that we worked together and the good and the bad and the ugly but you know he came to me yeah walked me into a hot space in the middle of river north next to rick bayless and said do whatever you want i gave him a cab ride once he didn't tip that's not surprising. <laughs> um, <laughs> that the actually, re- and the only reason I know that it was him was that the order came. This was when you know the, the order came up, the names, and usually you get like a last name or something. His just said Billy Deck, like the whole thing, oh, like yeah, the name. He's because yeah. he's yeah, right. He's, he's like Billy Deck. Yeah, he's kind of like the art, artist. He's not Mr. Deck. He's, he's like Deck. yeah, like the artist formerly known as Prince. Yeah, he's yeah, a, exactly. he's like a thing. The odd yeah. thing is that that is his yeah. name. Yeah, Deck is not a made-up name. But yeah, it's, that's it's, a, it's his father's. Uh, it's pretty funny. His father's and I, f- I probably didn't know who he was until I looked into who this like yeah. this kind of really kind of annoying guy was <laughs> yeah, who didn't tip me. And you know, as a anybody in the service industry, you notice. Shit oh, you like remember that. that forever? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> I, I, you don't. You don't. I, I remember the average in my life, yeah. but not for very long. Yeah, and I remember every single person that didn't tip. me. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So that's why I remember that it yeah. lodged in my head, <laughs> you know, like, and then, yeah, then I learned that he was a, a partner of yours for this at the, at the beginning, I guess. Well, so, yeah, well, what happened yeah. was, you know, yeah. I owned this by yeah. myself. Before and what, what, I so what was the place in River North? What did that? It was that called Bottle into? Fork. 
Bottle Fork. Bottle Fork. And that's, that's where Brandon and I uh, uh, came together because oh, okay. I was, what I wanted to do with it, because I walked in. He was the bar, bar guy there? Well, or? I walked into this space and uh-huh. it had a nice sized bar uh-huh. and then it had a completely open kitchen mm-hmm. that at one point had been like next to the bar. Uh-huh. But the fire department had come and ripped out the middle of the restaurant. So I thought it was one piece, and so that was my instant thought was, I want this to be a bar and kitchen. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, mixology was starting, was getting yeah. really, really popular. Yeah. And there was not much open at that time from a yeah. mixology perspective. Yeah. There was um, the drawing room on uh-huh. Rush Street, which was very much yeah. the, like, the place yeah. for a while. And then the guy at the drawing room left and uh-huh. opened the aviary. Oh, okay. Yeah. Charles Jolie, who's actually right. a Bridgeport guy, went to my high school. Yeah. But that's Brandon's mentor. Mm. So when he oh, left okay. drawing room, sense. Brandon kind of took over drawing room, which was around the corner from the Four Seasons. And the guy that I originally had to, to do this yeah. was the original guy at the office underneath the drawing room, mm. Jason Savalo, who's a really okay. good friend of mine, and a really good friend of Brandon's. Yeah. And... Uh, he was gonna do it, but then he had to go to Japan, so he wasn't sure. Yeah. And he's like, "You should talk to my boy Brandon." Uh-huh. And then Brandon and I started talking, and then Jason died. Oh, caught a horrible bug in like South America. Mm. Thought he was over it. I don't know if he had food poisoning or got yeah. like Giardia, Giardia, whatever it's called, like a, like like a parasite. Oh, geez. thought he was okay. Went to Japan. Uh-huh. Had a massive heart attack and died in Japan like five days ago. Fucking A. It was terrible. Terrible. Yeah. So Brandon was at drawing room. I was still at Four Seasons. Yeah. And I wanted him to do Bottle Fork. Yeah. And uh, so then we started, you know, I started going to yeah. the drawing room, drinking his drinks, getting yeah. to know him, and then eventually hired him to be the head barman yeah. for Bottle Fork. Yeah. And Bottle Fork was a great, big success. Yeah. It was not hard to be packed every day because yeah. it only. It only held like a hundred people, and yeah. you're smacked in between uh, uh, Frontera Grill and Bub City, and mm-hmm. across the street from Sunda, and uh, yeah. uh, what's that sushi steak place on the corner there? It's really popular. Uh, the drag place was still going strong right the, across the, the street. The baton, the baton yeah. was yeah. going really yeah, strong yeah. right across the street. I used to hang out in the space that was Bottle Fork before I opened Bottle Fork. Mm. <coughs> when it was called Jay's, I think. What was it called Jay's? It was a 4 a.m. place with pool tables. Mm. I used to go there all the time. Um, so that, the neighborhood was just thriving. Yeah. It was, you know, full of people. Yeah. Full of, you know, I had Rick Bayless next to me. Sure. I had my, my mentor, Carrie, across yeah. the street yeah. on the corner at Naha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it was like, this is awesome. It was really, yeah. it was very, very exciting. And uh, eventually they, you know, the, the Billy and his partners talked me into becoming a partner with them, mm-hmm. and they folded Duck in into their yeah. Uh, what do you call it? They helped me get. They helped me get my first. No, I think I got my first investor by myself. Okay. And he was a big investor. Yeah. And then because I had an investor, then Billy introduced me to a few different people. Yeah. And I was able to get a couple more investors. And then once I had like seventy percent of the money, mm-hmm. the last thirty percent became. Well, no, I don't want your money. I'll take his money, and I don't want. You know, uh, I, I got yeah. to be choosy about it, which was another thing that that working with Billy and his partners, particularly his partner yeah. Brad, taught me. He was mm-hmm. like, because I had like, 
I had like pseudo friends or acquaintances come to me and be like, I want to invest. How much oh. is it? And I was like, well, it's a $20,000 minimum yeah. investment. It's like, okay, I got to, okay, let me talk to my wife. Yeah. I got to listen. And I would tell Brad, and Brad's like, no, don't, no, don't let him invest. Uh-huh. Why? It's like, because if a guy's got to move money around to make something happen, that money is going to be really important to him. Yeah. That's not what you want. You want to be showing up at your you place a, every day or exactly. something. Like. You know, where's my money? Where's <laughs> yeah. my money, man? Yeah. He's like, when you say 20 grand, he's like, listen, in the world of restaurants and investment, yeah. when you tell a guy that it's $20,000 investment, if he can't pull out his checkbook and write a check, then you don't want yeah. it. That's the guy you want because that guy doesn't care. That guy's not going to be looking for his money. <laughs> he was right. Yeah. He was right. The people that invested, they never, I mean, one of three of them moved to Florida, one yeah. of them moved to, and I never hear from them. Yeah. <laughs> They're very nice people. Yeah. The whole hard seltzers thing is like beyond baffling. It's a fucking weak vodka to- vodka it's, soda. It's, it's a shitty vodka soda. It's soda. It's so- it's just terrible. Vodka soda with uh, it smells like syrup. Like, yeah, and the, the can, those cans. Like we when I was still a Skylark, you know, Bob relented and, and got stopped one, and I would open it. It Constant just quest, I'm sure. And it just. Like, it's just like, it's like B.O., like the smell of it. Yeah, like, there's yeah. like this smell to it. Yeah, it's just horrendous. Well, because most of them, what the, the appeal, the appeal is the lower calories. So most of them have like... Yeah, and very low... Artificial sweeteners. And very low alcohol content. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like a beer. Yeah. A Which, beer, wine. you know, you, you can ask your corner bartender to mix you a very weak vodka soda with like a lime or a lemon or some other, like a dash of some fruit flavor you'll get a much better no the fruit flavor's got calories man <laughs> the only calories you got some yeah you know right. aspartame flavored blueberry syrup okay yeah. well, that's good you yeah. end up with some other fucking disease not diabetes but you'll, yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll end up with some other form of cancer right <laughs> right so, so we're talking about the investor so you lined up the investors for this yeah place. I was able to line up the yeah. investors finally and then it took me I don't remember at what point it was sometime in the spring, summer, we started doing the renovations here. Of 2014? Yeah. Oh, okay. It was, it was into 2014. Yeah, it was okay. sometime, sometime in the middle of 2014 mm. that we, able to, we I, had enough, I had the money together yeah. and I was able to hire a contractor and start the renovations yeah. here. So, um, but then we, we, we weren't able to open until December 5th. Yeah. Which is one of those things like that's not when you should open a restaurant. Mm. It's the worst time yeah. of the year. Blah 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 blah. But it worked out in the end because well, it's also one of those things where you don't have any choice. Yeah. You know, you gotta open. You gotta open at some point. And December's bad. January's worse. Yeah. So what are you gonna sit here for six eight weeks with a fully mm. ready to go restaurant and not open because yeah. it's a bad time of year? You gotta start making money. Yeah. Um, but we kind of got lucky in that, you know, we opened on December 5th. It was the holiday season, so it was kind of a hot new thing. Yeah. So we, we got, we, we were busy enough. Yeah. And then uh, come the first quarter, it was a mild winter, and we were the only new thing in town. Yeah. So people were excited. So January, February, March, it was kind of busy. Yeah, I mean, I definitely came here pretty soon. You guys got written up somewhere, or like, I found, and I'd, I'd moved to Bridgeport in January 2015. Oh. That's when I'm so it's like coincided, yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I, I gotta, you know, like again, I have to give a lot of credit to Billy Pack and uh-huh. partners. And you know, uh, we were at that point, we were fully a part of that restaurant group, yeah. So, you know, we hired a 
PR company to cover sure. the whole restaurant group. Yeah. But we were the shiny new toy in the group. Yeah. And that was the one that got us the most attention. Mm -hmm. And so we went on a PR trip to New York and, yeah. and you know, I sat with every major either editor or food writer of every major magazine, like Food Wine, Bon Appetit, Wine Spectator, yeah. um, Esquire, all that kind of stuff. And we got on their radar, probably mm -hmm. helped meeting with the editor at Esquire to get us on the radar of the guy who wrote the best new restaurant mm. uh, issue of Esquire magazine, which yeah. we wound up on. You know. That first year we got Esquire Magazine, Best New Restaurants, Eater, Chicago Restaurant of the Year, yeah. Tribune, uh, Chef of the Year, and Bartender of the Year, all in the first year. You know? And we were actually, we were hitting kind of a slump in yeah. the middle of 2015. Yeah. And then all those accolades came yeah. out and we got all the yeah. big ups. For, and, you know, we were suffering down here from being in this neighborhood. Yeah. And that has only, only, that started to change mm -hmm. in 2020. Yeah. The first quarter of 2020, all of a sudden we noticed our clientele was a lot more neighborhood. Yeah. Which, because, and, and it wasn't a lot more neighborhood because the old school neighborhood had decided to finally yeah. give us a shot. Right. It was because the neighborhood was starting to fill up with people buying expensive homes with higher income. Well, you know, Johnny O's close, so they had nowhere yeah. else to eat. That's what it was. <laughs> Johnny O died, and then, like, they had to go somewhere. <laughs> I don't go out often <laughs> for breaded steak sandwiches, mm -hmm. Italian beef sandwiches, yeah. or that kind of food. Yeah. Since Johnny O's closed. Yeah. Oh. Because yeah. It, it was better. That's... Johnny O's breaded steak sandwich was very good. <laughs> I've always, I still want to do a breaded steak sandwich here. <laughs> well, maybe Remova. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Breaded steak sandwich. Maybe. Yeah. That, that's cool. And so, how long? And Billy Deck was out after a couple uh, right of years. Around, right around two thousand in two thousand seventeen, mm. a lot of things started happening with uh, the Rocket Group. Yeah, the president of the company. He and Billy had been friends for sixteen, seventeen years. <laughs> that relationship, yeah, ended. So he was out. Yeah. Um, the company wasn't really being run. Um, the two principals then, Brad and Billy, they both were getting older and had kids mm. and they're younger than me. Yeah. So their kids are still very young. My sure. Kids, my kid's 20. Um, I think Billy's got three kids now and his oldest one's probably only 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. Um, Brad's got two kids and they're probably five. Um, but you know, they were slowing down and changing their focus and well then... You know, my wife, I came home one day and my wife's like, uh, Billy's house is for sale. It's mm. in the Sotheby's flyer. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Call him up like, hey, uh, you, you, you moving? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> my wife and my son are going to go to Nashville. And I'm going to like back and forth for a while, but eventually oh. I'm going to move to Nashville too. Oh. Like, okay. <laughs> and then Brad put his house up for sale. Uh. And... He eventually moved to Fisher Island, Florida, uh, huh. Miami. Um, so that was all happening, and so the whole thing was kind of, you know, becoming and being being a part of Rocket. This restaurant being a part uh -huh. of Rocket started to not be a good thing. 
Oh, okay. It started to be a negative. You know, we, we, people who, people who would find us because of Rocket uh-huh. would be disappointed. It wasn't the experience they wanted. They wanted a Stella Artois and a vodka soda, Tito's. You got Tito's. And you weren't in Douchemanistan. And we were where, in Douchemanistan, where so they had to your travel. Part, yeah. And they tried to, use their, <laughs> try to use their points or try to use gift certificates from oh, the Rocket. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, okay. uh, this is not our crowd. Yeah. Uh, we weren't mixing well with them. And then Brandon you know, Brandon had become a partner with the company. Oh. And we, uh, they, they had a space mm-hmm. that had been Martini Ranch. And then they turned okay, it. This is the they turned it into a Mexican joint uh-huh. with a horrifically racist name. Uh, but the partner, the president of the company, was Mexican, so the place was called I Chihuahua. <laughs> Swear to God, it's called I Chihuahua, and uh, <laughs> like I Caramba, or like yeah. like. Well, it was it was immediately <laughs> successful because of two reasons. One, they had this really successful nightclub called Underground. I remember been, Underground. It's still open. Yeah, yeah. That, that had been really successful, but then uh, the landlord said you could, they could expand and double the size of the club. But in order to do that, they wanted to do a whole new renovation. So they uh. closed the club for I don't know how long. And this was before I joined them. Yeah. Uh, they closed the club for several months. And in those several months, they just directed all the business to this I Chihuahua, mm-hmm. which was like this shitty tequila bar with mm-hmm. bad Mexican food yeah. and a 4M license. Yeah. So they brought all the business there. It thrived. It was yeah. popping and everything. But then Underground reopened, so mm-hmm. it all went back. And the owners, Billy, Brad, Arturo, yeah. who were very much part of the brand, that's why uh, they went to these clubs, because there yeah. was all their friend network and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, they focused on the Underground. And I Chihuahua just started going really downhill. So first they brought Brandon and I and said, okay, revamp it. Yeah. Give it some coolness. Yeah. So Brandon comes up with these amazing, you know, cocktails, Mexican, all Mexican uh, cocktails. I go and I revamp the yeah. food menu. I honestly, in my opinion, just made it more Mexican than it yeah. was. Even though the partner was Mexican, yeah. but he was born and raised in Douchemenistan. So <laughs> it was... It was douche tacos. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried to make it like really authentic tacos. And, uh, yeah, douche medicine was more the crowd than the, like any ethnic ethnic. No, yeah, it doesn't matter. No, no. It's, douche medicine is full of Latino, African American. All kinds Middle of people guys. over there, but yeah, yeah they're all there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, not, it's definitely not a white guy thing. Um, so they brought us in to try and fix it, and we just made it worse. Yeah. Because the yeah. few people that were coming there didn't want cool cocktails. Mm. They didn't want real tacos. Okay. They wanted shitty sweet margaritas and, you know, mild chicken tacos. So you were like, they wanted like an expensive Taco Bell. Exactly. <laughs> which, exactly. What Taco Bell is doing now. Which is, like which Taco in, Bell now does. In retrospect, <laughs> if we had gone in there and said, okay, you know what, we're going to fucking do, we're going to do good quality crunch wraps and, yeah. and burrito supreme and I don't even know Taco Bell menu because it's the only uh, fast food I've never had. And Tastes like Alpo. Right. And Brandon, <laughs> Brandon go and do uh, Mountain Dew Blast or whatever yeah, it's yeah. called, Blue Blast thing. Yeah, yeah. Cocktails, like, I bet you we would have been really successful. <laughs> but we didn't. Yeah, you get you get a line of those like mixer, like margarine Yeah, mixers, exactly. It's a slushy, pull, slushy pull, machine. Slushy you know? machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No bartenders, just people who can pull, yeah. pull a lever. Um, <laughs> 
So we ruined it. Yeah. Um, which we kind of told them that we would. Yeah. Which is why they never, they always wanted us to work with it was, was the, They always wanted us to like do something at Sunda. We're was like, the, no, we'll ruin it. Was it's the doctor, successful. Was this place work. open by then? Yes. Yeah, it was open oh, yeah. by then. Okay. Bottle Fork was open. This was open. Okay. You know, and then it just became, they, they allowed this, you know, Billy kind of painted this picture of like, I want you, me, uh -huh. to come in and. And, and take our restaurant group and bring it up a level and everything. Uh -huh. yeah. I want you to bring up the quality. I want you to bring up the the, the work environment. Because, you know, Four Seasons was is renowned uh -huh. for, for a great workplace. You know, yeah. It was in, you know, top places to work. Oh, okay. And it really was. It had an excellent corporate yeah. culture. It really mm. did. But particularly, the lower you were on mm -hmm. the rung yeah. in Four Seasons, yeah. the better your experience was. As you went up the ladder... <laughs> It sure. definitely got shittier and tougher mm. and, and more disillusioning. But if you were a fucking pot washer at Four Seasons, you thought well, that's like how it the should greatest be. place in the world. I would think. Yeah, sure. Like in a big until you work your way yeah. up and start yeah. getting treated like shit. Yeah. But it was a great work environment. It had a great yeah. corporate culture. Yeah. He wanted me to bring that. He wanted mm. me to bring mm -hmm. you know, Michelin level quality. And he didn't want it as much as he thought he did. Yeah. And he didn't want to change, you have to change if yeah. you want to do that. You have to make massive changes, and he didn't want to do that. And then his focus changed, and he didn't want to be in Chicago anymore. And yeah. I don't blame him at this point. You know, it's all water under the bridge. But <laughs> one of the, the big things was that Y Chihuahua closed, yeah. and that neighborhood was at that time was getting pretty shitty. Yeah, you know everything had closed around at that mm. Walmart where the yeah 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 security guards had Uzis on their hip. Right, that closed. You had the Dunkin' Donuts, you had the Methadone Clinic across the mm -hmm. street, which yeah. made that that corner of Chicago yeah. and Franklin was one of those odd places in Chicago where it was more dangerous during the day than it was at night. Mm. And then at night it was just empty, desolate, yeah. no one, nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah there's was, a few cabbie restaurants a little south of there so that were open Pakistani all night. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was yeah. all those. There was one right on on I the corner there. That that's a some kind of diner now, I think. But yeah, I used to was go to that a, one out of college. There's that a few more down uh, Orleans, a little north. There's still uh, one or two down there. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, because aren't really the, open to the public. Well, but yeah, the cab business is dead, so that's what those places are dead. Yeah, it's too bad. Uh, yeah. Food. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would eat at those kinds of places all the time. Cheap, quality, spicy yeah. as fuck. Then the earlier, like when I first started driving here, which was 2003. Uh, there was a place in River North called the Rainbow Restaurant. And that was a cabbie for the yeah. old school, like the white and black yeah, cabbies. It was like a shitty diner kind of place. Uh, the building's not even there. They raised it. I'm sure there's some fucking hotel there on that. Where was it? Uh, Clark, maybe Clark and like, not Huron, but like further e Erie, somewhere in there, like... On the cor it was a corner place. It had a parking lot, obviously, yeah. for all the cabs. Yeah. It was a yeah. shitty old, like, it was a thing from another time yeah. that was probably lasted until, like, 05 or 06 or something, somewhere in there. But, like, all the Pakistani and Indian places, and then the further north, the, the African places were good, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. For, for those cab drivers. Yeah. And they, yeah, they would have a sign from like seven restaurants ago and they didn't fucking change it because they didn't care about decor and they were open all, all hours. Yeah. But all that is gone now from, from over there. Yeah. So, yeah. So that closed. So the Ichawawa. Ichawawa closed yeah. finally. 
you know, it had rats. It was, all, it was terrible. It was falling out. It was garbage shitty. Nobody did yeah. put any money into it. Yeah. It was just a dump. You literally, there was like a little prep kitchen, a little kitchen behind the bar. And to get to the kitchen, you, there was a, a, like a fucking dog hole. And the bar back would crawl on his oh. knees through his hole to go and get ice. And stuff. It was awful. Yeah. And uh, it was closed and we were paying rent on it. And yeah. All this kind of stuff. And I was a partner at this point. Yeah. You know? And uh, we, we had multiple partner meetings about it. And, mm. and uh, finally, Billy put it to a vote. Billy's like, I really want to put, I want a cool, cool cocktail bar. Yeah. A really cool cocktail bar. Someplace where I want Brandon uh-huh. to like, really flourish in there. And, uh, but then he put it up to a vote. There was four of us, which was me, Brad, Billy, Arturo. And uh, put it up to a vote and we voted three to one to uh, end the lease and walk away. Uh-huh. And I was one of the three saying, I don't want to do it. Cause I, did, I wanted to open a cool cocktail bar. I wanted to give yeah. Brandon a, yeah. a showcase to like, just yeah. do, you know, take on you know, Violet Hour and yeah. uh, Aviary and all that. Sure. Really do it. But not there. Yeah. Not at 311 East Chicago. Yeah. It's like, no, that's a shit location. Yeah. It's a shit building. It's a dump. The rent was way too high. The rent was yeah. like $12,000 a month. It's insane. Yikes. Insane. I was like, just, you know, take it on the chin on the money that you didn't make back from the 180 grand you put into it. Seven years, five years ago, to make that's less than I pay for a year where I live. <laughs> uh, um, and and that's, that's really high rent for that for that size space. Yeah. In that neighborhood at that time, it's like crazy. Yeah. And we own the four o'clock license. Only four mm-hmm. o'clock license yeah. is worth a couple hundred grand. Yeah. Sell the license. Sell the mm. sell the what do you call it? Sell the lease. Yeah. It'll cover what you guys put into it four or five years ago, whatever. And let's walk away and find a cooler space. Yeah. And. So we voted on it, and Billy overwrite us because oh. it wasn't really a partnership. Yeah. This is whatever yeah. Billy wanted to do is what, sure. what happened. So then they said, "Okay, now we're going to do it. Here's the budget. It's your project. You make it happen." So, okay. Mm. So we created this homage to Fellini mm. called Otto di Mezzo, or just Otto Mezzo, mm-hmm. and we did this gorgeous, fucking beautiful Art Deco cocktail bar mm-hmm. with very little food. You know, yeah. I, we just did. Um, you know, we did. It was really snacks. Like mm-hmm. we did some cool shit, yeah. food wise. But it was really about the, the drinks. Plus, it had a yeah. four o'clock license. That was like yeah. we really wanted. Which, in the in retrospect, we should have not even bothered with the four a.m. license. Yeah. Because so we decided to open it at eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And be open till four. Yeah. And that was stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we went. We went in heavy. Like we're, okay, yeah. we're going to open a co- yeah. an Italian cocktail bar. Then we're going to do it like the way it should be done, the mm-hmm. absolute purest way. Yeah. So we had no beer from yeah. America. Yeah. We only had Italian beer and we only had like one known Italian beer. Mm-hmm. And now I can't remember if it was Moretti or Peroni. Mm-hmm. We only had one mm-hmm. Italian beer that people yeah. knew and the other five Italian beers on tap mm-hmm. were Italian microbreweries, most of which they were only available in Italy or at our bar, mm. which sounds cool. Yeah. Nobody yeah. cared. Yeah. Um, we had the largest selection of grappa mm. in Chicago. We had the largest selection of Amaro in Chicago. Mm. 
nobody cared. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what year is it? What year were we talking? 2017. Okay. Um, it was beautiful inside. It was mm. gorgeous. We had a dress code. There was no standing allowed mm. in the bar. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, just like aviary or, or violet out. Yeah. It's like, you know, we've got these seats and these yeah. seats. When they fill up, we're full. Wait outside. When somebody leaves, you yeah. can come in. Right. I was not, not taken one. We never had a line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a doorman out there. We didn't need a yeah. doorman. So well, we kind of needed a doorman because yeah. there were crazy people yeah. around. Sure. So the methadone clinic. Uh, but as it got later, actually, it got safer because it just got desolate. Yeah. And uh, so it was a huge failure. Yeah. And uh, they kept wanting to find ways to cut costs. Yeah. And why don't we have Tito's? Because we, we only had Italian vodka. Uh -huh. We had Italian yeah. gin. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I want a Hendrix. And yeah. Well, we don't have Hendrix. We have this spectacular, we have a bottle of it too. Yeah. This spectacular tomato flavored gin from uh, <laughs> Northern Italy. It's like, uh -huh. you got Hendrix? Yeah. So <laughs> it, uh, it did not succeed. It's a shame. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. Okay. And so that was the end of you and Billy Dad? That, that, that was the catalyst yeah. for the end. You yeah. know, when. And eventually, what, what happened was Billy and it, well, I'll tell you the, the, the true end. Well, I can't tell you the true end. No, no you don't. Have, you no, know. Legally, I can't tell you. <laughs> no need. To, no, I can't tell is, you. This is not a muckraking situation. No, I'm, I'm, not, not, it's just I'm I, not knocking I, at your door when you're yeah, in your robe with a camera. Or even that. I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm no legally, comment, right? Legally bound <laughs> yeah. to not discuss yeah, yeah. that aspect. That's fine. <laughs> But, but like I'm just but the reality, yeah. the, yeah. the, the true reality was that they were just that rest that bar was losing money. Yeah, um, Bottle Fork was barely breaking even because the rent was pretty high there too. Yeah, um, this place was doing okay. Um, their Asian restaurant Sunda was doing very very well uh -huh. and continues to do. Yeah. Uh, but then their flagship Rocket Bar and Grill, which they mm -hmm. this previous president had completely revamped and remodeled and mm -hmm. put a ton of money into uh, was failing mm -hmm. and it had been thriving before that yeah and they just went too far and this I wasn't really involved in the uh -huh. decision-making to completely like renovate and change the look of this place mm -hmm. they did that and it was closed for like four or five months yeah. and that's just too long to be closed they should have gone in changed the lighting freshen it up new tables mm -hmm. and chairs yeah. You know, like during the pandemic, yeah, I I stripped the floors, restained them, and rebuffed them, and uh, people still walk in, and and we changed the lights. Yeah, we literally put a a, a, a yellow film over yeah. the lights. People walk in, are like, did you completely renovate? Like, no, man, we fucking, <laughs> we stripped the floors, yeah. and put uh, six dollars worth of film on the on the lights. Yeah, and that's it. We changed the bar light points. They put yeah. down on the bar now. And we changed the lights in the dining room so they all yeah. pinpoint the middle of the table. Yeah. And people think we spent $100,000 renovating. There That's what go. they should have done with Rocket Bar and Grill. Yeah. Instead, they stripped it yeah. and opened it. It looked nothing like it had looked before. Uh -huh. And uh, it failed horribly. Yeah. failed miserably. It sucked the life out of that company financially. Uh -huh. So that really just kind of... Yeah. Brad and Billy were very nice. They they, yeah. they brought me in and said, "Listen, you yeah. can yeah. we'll sell you bottle fork and yeah. tomato." Yeah. But the number was just like, "Yeah, I'm too involved." Yeah. To know that this is ridiculous. Mm. Yeah. I know what it costs. I know what it's yeah. worth. And not a chance I'm paying that. 
which, you know, in retrospect, I don't know, maybe they would have thrived on our own, maybe they would have failed. The pandemic definitely would have killed both of those concepts. Sure, sure. yeah. Would have killed Otometso outright, yeah. just death. And Bottle Fork would have had a really hard time. Yeah, you can't deliver high-end cocktails to people. <laughs> you, you can, you I mean, can, you know, a place, a, a well-established place with money in the bank. And, and well, you know, in retrospect, maybe I could have, you know, or like a ghost kitchen or something. You, like, you could have done a ghost you, kitchen. Yeah. Eventually, packaged cocktails. But yeah. Yeah. But it took almost a year to make that legal. Right. Um, yeah. But what, 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 you know, in retrospect, had mm-hmm. I known about PPP and all that kind of stuff, yeah, could have kept it afloat. But yeah. you didn't know that, you know, you had no idea, and and you had no idea as it was happening. So yeah, could have sure. killed, it, you know, knowing what I know now, if yeah. I knew that right when the pandemic hit, yeah. I would have been like, oh yeah, no problem, we're good. But three months, six yeah. months into the pandemic, you didn't know if you were going to be good with that federal loan because they handled that so fucking poorly yeah so poorly and it's funny because like you know the, the trump idiots will talk oh about yeah you got a berserker criticize the, yeah. the trump idiots will criticize the government for giving people the ppp well, yeah it's trump yeah and then the other side will criticize the fact that the ppp was a disaster yeah that was trump mm-hmm. it was just all those things he rolled out you know, like, yeah like the the immigration thing where he wasn't allowing people from certain countries in, yeah. and you know, the, the, the people on the ground at immigration at the airports were like, we don't know Canada. I still, I still wish he had a fucking drunk bleach like he was recommending for a bit there. Oh yeah, that would have gone well. Like, I, I, you, you fucking do it first. That'll, that'll keep, that'll keep you. Uh, it wasn't bleach healthy, though. It was like, something else. There's something that somebody with bleach. Drank, or yeah. And it was, it was like uh, uh, aquarium <laughs> cleaner. Yeah. It was the shit you used to clean your aquarium, yeah. and some guy and his wife drank it and they died. Yeah, sure. I remember that. Down in Florida. Well, you know, <laughs> when, when, you know, the guy in charge is a carnival barker, like the people that are going to take the pitch, like... P.T. Barnum. Yeah. Ugh. So then, so then, so Billy Duck departed for, for Southern... Billy South went to Nashville and opened oh, oh. Uh, Sunda in Nashville, oh, oh, I which I was, I was there at the very oh, okay. beginning of that. I went down to Nashville with them, mm. and we scouted locations, and we found the location that... Uh, is Sunday now, mm-hmm. and it was it was a great location. It was like right in the heart of the Gulch in Nashville, mm-hmm. right across the street from the Thompson Hotel. It was like some cheesy Mexican yeah. concept at the time, but they turned it into Sunday, and I think it does well. Yeah, I'm not sure. He was supposed to open another Sunday right off, right off Fulton, but I don't know what's happening with that. The sign was there, and mm. now he just announced he's opening one in Tampa. Cool. And the underground, they revamped underground and turned it. They stole the uh, the graphics imaging from Otometso and uh, created yeah. an underground cocktail club with an Art uh, Deco style, which was Otometso. Um, I think it does all right. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, you got to give it to them. I mean, the nightclub business is a very up, down, transient. Nightclubs generally have. It's a, a wonder any of these places have any well, kind of lifespan. Well, that's why over there, nightclubs generally have a lifespan of like two to five years. Yeah. Anything past five years is pretty miraculous. I saw them change all and the time. Underground yeah. is going on yeah. 15 years or something like that, which that's just astonishing. That's yeah. really amazing. Probably longer. Yeah. Probably, I want to say the 10 year anniversary was somewhere around 2016. 15 or 16. Yeah. So that was the 10 year. So, yeah. They're going on at least 
So then, seventeen years. Maybe. So then, after that, you were you were just left with this place for a certain amount yeah. of time. Yeah, it was it was uh, you know like that happened, and Brandon and I just kind of took this you know this is ours, and yeah, uh, I made him a partner at a certain point, and uh, yeah, we were on our own. It was very scary. Yeah, very very scary. Like I, you know, I, and I had a I had a salary working with the. Yeah, the rocket. I was the yeah. you know, I was the food and beverage yeah. director and a partner. So you know, I I had a little percentage of their places, yeah. and they had a tiny percentage of yeah. this place. But that was all predicated on my um, employment. Mm. So when I stopped working for them, I yeah. stopped having any ownership yeah. in their places. They stopped having any ownership here, right. and I stopped having an income. Yeah. <laughs> so my income was gone yeah. overnight. Um, so I like kind of practically rated my 401k mm. which was you know I had a one-time opportunity to take a chunk of my 401k so I took a big chunk of that and lived on it for a couple of years before I started taking a little salary um, yeah we kind of limped along and then the business just started getting better and better here and yeah I don't know if it was Partly due to not being part of Rocket anymore. Mm. Partly due to the neighborhood really starting to, you know, evolve and, and, and get more people. You know, there's more people live here now than they did when they opened. Right. And the people that live, the, the more people that live here, are of a higher income bracket with a higher taste. You know, they want different and better things. Sure. And we're still, you know, I mean, all those people that build houses down there and all the people that build mm. houses over there and south and all that yeah. kind of stuff, we're still like the only place for them to go. Right. Probably always will be unless unless Archer Avenue gets Who knows? developed. You know? Yeah, I don't know. It will be where hard. else are you gonna go? Bridgeport Inn? Yeah, it would be hard to develop because it's like a fucking highway there. Like that's yeah, like all those place when they try to put like nice places on Western Avenue, it's really hard because it's a fucking highway. Well, you know, shit, like, I mean, forget <laughs> nice places, how about any places? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, sure. yeah. and, and our funeral home was on Archer and Arch, Archer was thriving. Oh, yeah. Stores and yeah. restaurants and sure. bars and, you know, boutiques and businesses. There were businesses. Yeah. There was a grocery store. There was a bakery. Yeah. There was six, seven bars between right. Halstead yeah. and Ashland. Yeah, seven sure. at least seven bars. Um, they're all gone. And but yeah, before I forget, there. so the Duckin that that the name comes from uh, another place. Well, my great grandmother, your your depression, had a place called the Duckin. Yeah, her husband died, and they had they their original funeral home. Yeah, was where the liquor store is. Uh, which the liquor store on, oh, Archer. on, on Archer over here? Yeah, yeah, next to the you got the Bridgeport Bakery. That's kind of open, kind of Where's not the, open. Yeah, yeah. Open occasionally. Yeah. I got my punch keys there. Um, oh, yeah, they were open for punch keys. Yeah, right. Punch uh, the liquor store was all state or something mm. state. I forget what it's called. The liquor store and the white tile building next to it, that was our family funeral home. And my great grandfather died. And mm. my, my grandmother and my, or my great grandmother and my grandfather grew up in the apartment above it. Mm -hmm. um, when he died, it was the Depression, and my grandmother. My grandfather was the oldest. He was only 17. Yeah. And my great-grandmother didn't have a license. Yeah. You know, she didn't go to college. She didn't yeah. Go to I think three or four generations of my family went to Warshams. Mm -hmm. um, so she lost the building. Mm, yeah. 
in losing the building, she lost her home. Oh, so yeah. she, they owned another building on Archer, I'm, I'm sorry, on uh, 35th and Ashland, next to Faison's uh, uh -huh. flower shop. Yeah, yeah. They owned the building next to it. Yeah. And so she, in a two-bedroom apartment, put her six kids yeah. and uh, opened a diner and called it the Duncan. Mm. That's that picture. So when I took this over, I named it after her. Did so, you come here when it was Gem Bar Lounge? No, you know, I never went in here, oh, but I remember it as a cab driver. I remember passing it lots of times yeah. and wondering what it was. And no, I never went in here uh, when it was Gem Bar. I grew up, you know, with it being here. Yeah. Knew the family. Only one family ever owned it. Yeah. Three generations. Yeah, there were any... Sometime I was in here to eat, and there, were, there was people from the family, and they were all gathering here for some kind of anniversary or something. We've had, some kind of had get several, together. We've had several. We had, yeah. Uh, Just recently, like in the well, last recently, year. Recently, that, yeah. that was the uh, the daughter of the guy. The guy, the man I knew growing up, he mm. died. Mm. And when he died, that's when they sold it. And I technically bought it from his widow, but she's oh. like 93. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. She was 90 at the time, so she's probably 100 now. Um, and that was, that party that you saw, that was his, their daughter's uh, 50th wedding anniversary. Yeah. But we had a we had a funeral luncheon here yeah. last year for the girl in that oh, picture yeah. right there holding oh. the uh, World War II Nazi bomb mm. in the backyard. That's that picture's yeah. taken in oh, the backyard, cool. yeah. and that's a Nazi bomb because <laughs> her brother, yeah. who I bought the building from, he yeah. fought in World War II. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's family that was involved with the bank, right? That was uh, a related, branch of the same related, family. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, the the bar was opened like 1918, uh -huh. and the two brothers opened it, and they yeah. ran it. I think they ran it until the depression started, yeah. and then the other brother went and opened, or not the depression, prohibi uh, prohibition, prohibition, yeah, they ran it until prohibition started, and then uh, I think originally this wasn't just a bar. I think yeah. it was like a general store oh, okay. with liquor yeah. and so on and so forth. And then Prohibition came and they just didn't sell liquor mm -hmm. and they were able to survive because they lived here as well. But they the, lived in the back? They lived or, in the back, yeah. yeah. The, those French doors were a wall. Right, I figured that was there. not, yeah. And then the Perfect one space. brother left and he opened a savings and loan. Yeah. On Archer. On Archer and, yeah. and, uh, Archer and Bonfield. Yeah. And he bought that land yeah. for the, what do you call it, for the bank, uh -huh. the savings and loan, yeah. for my great, great grandfather wow because that's where the the business the family business started yeah. there and it wasn't the funeral business it was horse and buggy mm. livery business yeah which that's where you went when you had a funeral you went to a livery sure and you had a horse and a case on and a horse and buggy for the family to all take everything to the to the uh, cemetery yeah and then when they started doing more and more funerals they built the building down the street and yeah. the business there and sold that building to the Gimbaras. Yeah. And they opened the savings and loan that they ran for fuck uh, 80, 90 years. Yeah. Until the huge scandal. The ignominious end. There was just another wow. there was a Sun Long Sun Times article about more details of the, the final. Recently? Yeah, yeah, last week. Oh shit, I gotta look it up. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll send it to me. I'll send it. I'll send it to you. Any, any, any new details? So any long. New? 
I mean, more detail because the, the the guy's partner is now on trial, the Kowalski. Yeah, the guy that's still yeah. alive. Uh, yeah. yeah, and he, you know, he's of course throwing everybody and their mother under the bus. Sure. And uh, that one I can speak about freely because yeah. I am free and clear. I got the mortgage for the Duck Inn. I was I wondering. I was wondering if you yeah, if you had any connection to that place. Oh no, I yeah, yeah, will yeah, yeah. do more research on those articles because yeah. you'll find two yeah. or three about me. Oh, okay. About my sister. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. We we yeah. my my dad. Um, my dad started getting into yeah. real estate like in the 80s and he yeah. quit his job and he just did real estate and he was you know, what, what he did yeah. by real estate he would buy yeah. like a shitty bungalow fix it up rent it out and then maybe eventually sell it yeah. and so he started doing all of his mortgages with Washington Savings Loan because there was that decades generational uh, family connection and uh, he eventually bought shares in the bank Oh, okay. And he had, I think he said in like 89, he spent $50,000 buying shares in the bank. Yeah. And then when the bank fell apart, the book value on his shares was $985,000. Mm. And when the bank went yeah. down, all yeah. that money was gone. No, there's, I mean, in the new article, I'll send it to you, but there's a lot of, I mean, the the guy, the, the president, the guy that killed himself. John. Yeah. Or or was murdered depending who you ask oh, yeah, that yeah whatever that is one fucking fishy story but uh whatever his, his assistants and like a couple of women that work directly below uh, a latino woman that worked for there's him. a latino woman and then there's an asian woman and they're yeah. testifying obviously to save their necks against kowalski so there's some quotes from them oh. yeah you'll you'll be interested oh, it's I'll a big long article that. yeah uh, okay. that was that was such a mess yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm like free and clear because the only thing I ever That's had good. to do with that bank yeah. was he gave me my mortgage. Yeah. I paid my mortgage every yeah. month. Right. Know, the records will prove that. And then when the bank went under, my mortgage got sold like two or three times before I finally yeah. grabbed well, went to Wintrust and got a, a solid it, mortgage. It's such, it's such a it test. Took down, uh, what's the thing? Testament to changing times that anybody with the name Daly connected to them could be serving time for anything related to that well, like he no, was he's no longer serving that oh did he get out got out right before christmas oh okay no but he was living in the ancestral in the house on low where the old man was the old man's house the old man's house yeah. yeah but that anybody with the name daily in bridgeport could be made to pay for the transgression for hands in the cookie jar is like kind of amazing yeah you know it is, it is astonishing <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have ever moved to the Bridgeport of that I knew, read about, or what Old Man Daly's Bridgeport. I don't think I would have liked it here. It wouldn't. It have was been different. Me. Yeah. It was. It was. It was different growing up. Much different. But much much different. Yeah. I. I, had a, I always had a. You know, I, I say I had a love hate relationship with the neighborhood growing up. Yeah. But it was more hate than love. Well, you were talking about how your mom wanted to get away from like well, people she, yeah, telling it their. Was, it was. It was. Very much, much more so then than now. It was a small gossip town. and rumors. It was a small yeah, town, yeah. You know? I mean, it was very insular. It was very, yeah. you know, nobody left. It was multi generational. I had the same fucking first grade teacher as my mother and father. You know, my father never moved anywhere from the three block radius. My mom's family lived yeah. in the same house. It was bar, for bars with years. the buzzer, like Bernice still has bars the buzzer. Like, bars with yeah. buzzers. Yeah. yeah, very much like that. My uncles owned the Bridgeport Inn for years. They did. It was called the melting pot, uh, ironically. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> that is, yeah. It, it's anything but a melting and, pot. It, well, you know, but you know, <laughs> yes, yes, and no. Like when I, so you go back forty years when mm -hmm. I'm growing up here, fifty mm -hmm. years, it was very like my best friends were yeah. Mexican, Chinese, yeah, well, and Sicilian, but yeah. they were very much Sicilian, like off the boat. Yeah, born in Sicily, first yeah. generation. Americans, but Chinese, Mexican, I mean, my Spanish was as good as it was when I got in kitchens because my first girlfriend was Rosa Ruvacaba, whose mm -hmm. family owned Mexico Steakhouse on mm -hmm. Archer, they still do. Yeah. Um, so it was, and maybe it was more melting pot on this side, because yeah. Bridgeport Such definitely a was... What a sprawling neighborhood. I Bridgeport mean, was definitely defined by Halstead Street. Yeah. You know, you're east of Halstead, it's one kind of neighborhood, you're west of Halstead, yeah. it's another kind of neighborhood. So west of Halstead was... You know, diversified. You know, it was a, you know, a heavy Latino. Yeah. Um, you know, Eastern European, Irish. Yeah, a lot of that Lithuanian the other side was, stuff. Yeah. The other side was pretty much solidly Italian with a chunk of Croatian. My first Bridgeport apartment that I moved to in 2015 was right next door to Bruno's Bakery. You know that place? It's a Lithuanian. Uh, Lithuanica? Lithuanica, yeah. That, yeah. No, I know My, it very well. Yeah. The owner tried to sell me the the bake the oven. Yeah. Like the deck oven. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Well, it's kinda of full of asbestos and I'm like, No. Because I thought about buying it and sticking oh, right. it in my garage, yeah, yeah. which might have gotten yeah. me divorced. But, uh, <laughs> but he told me it was full of asbestos. Yeah, I, lived I was like, right no, next, no. next door to there for five years. That's <laughs> <coughs> rye bread in the city. Yeah, was, I like Love that was it the health bread or whatever the the everything it, it was like mm -hmm. a brick. Yeah, it was really it, good. <laughs> that was good bread. Yeah, heavy Lithuanian stuff. Yeah, 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 that was great. And and that yeah that, what's it called, the health the restaurant next door to Bernice's uh, healthy, healthy foods. Healthy foods. That was supposed to be the duck in. Oh yeah. Yeah, she wouldn't sell me. She still uh, lives there. I know she does. Cause, I was told well, I, recently that she. You know, I worked at Bernice's for a couple of years, right? Yeah. 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 So I yeah she would take the mail the mail would come to the bar for her oh, for her her and her daughter yeah yeah well they Jesus Christ that yeah. place that place was only run by women mm -hmm. for like eighty five years of I I got to eat there a couple of times which was cool yeah <laughs> yeah I know I grew up going to healthy foods I loved healthy yeah. foods the the best potato kugel ever <laughs> um, yeah I, I that was supposed to be the duck in mm. um, but she wouldn't sell to me yeah and she still lives there yeah. And I heard recently that she, unfortunately, she like lives in the restaurant. Yeah. She like had a mattress brought down because she can't get up the stairs. Oh well, yeah, She's I can. Got to be ninety-seven. If we turn this off, I could tell you all kinds of stories. <laughs> Life in Bernice's and oh, with Bernice and uh, yeah, in the horse stable size garage in back of Bernice's, where all of Steve's insane treasures and garbage and junk oh. is. It was a horse. It was a. I mean, it's it's horse a gigantic garage. horse garage. Yeah. yeah, this is a few around the neighborhood. There's it's big. A, it's bigger than the fucking bar. There's like a two flatter. Garage. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's gigantic. There's like a two flat or a four flat over yeah. on Troop Street across from the church, and the garage on their property is um, horse garages. Yeah. So we're like walking by or horse carriage houses. So like walking by, and my yeah. wife is like, "Why are the garage doors so tall?" Yeah, there's a bunch of and stuff like so tall so that a horse. And a carriage can get through. It's an amazing, yeah. So yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in that old style book that I, I wrote that's based on Bernice's. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. But yeah, that's a. That's crazy. still the only bar I go to in Bridgeport. Mm. 
I, it was the only bar I went to in Bridgeport until that that ended badly, really? <laughs> that well. Okay. Yeah. Well, after she died, Bernice died, he just he just went yeah, he extra. Went off the deep end. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he started on the deep end. He yeah. He. Uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. I did a lot, a lot of work there, and was barely compensated for. And and then I lost lost my job without any explanation. Uh, yeah. And yeah. But she, yeah, she was towards the end. She was living. Down, they wouldn't even go upstairs to their. He would. He would. He would sleep down there in like a fold-out bed in the bar. Really. Mm-hmm. Because. She couldn't go up the stairs because they're both hoarders, and they couldn't. They, it, it's a mental health, mental issue. Oh, that's sad. There was lots of stuff. Yeah, and he's you know he's a dry drunk. He's not you know he he hasn't drank in a long long time, but he lived. I mean, whatever. He's not going to fucking hear this, and I don't care really because <laughs> that didn't end well. So <laughs> no allegiance to to the man, but uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a sad, sad fucking story, yeah, sad. and uh, yeah, but I, I spent a lot of fucking time there, and uh, it, you know what? It actually co- where I when I was there coincided with the beginnings of the Trump administration. Oh really? And I would go back there into that fucking horse stable full of his crap, and I was organizing it for him, mm-hmm. and we were going to sell stuff on eBay and get rid of some of his quote unquote treasures, and it never ended up happening but i would go in there and forget about the fucking psych psychosis that this country was going through yeah. at that time so i think i thank him for giving me that yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah you know small blessings so now yes now you got got this place and then the remova down the down the coming up remova is definitely going to happen this yeah. year that's cool yeah that should be exciting and fun and different depart, a big, uh, definitely a departure from Ducky, yeah. and it'll be yeah. much, much more casual. More, yeah, a lot, lot less service heavy, mm-hmm. um, high volume, hopefully. Yeah, and then uh, we got the uh, we got the hot dogs all over the, the hot world. dogs in Europe. My sous chef just walked by. <laughs> Still alive. All right. He's oh. going for a walk. He's actually renting one of my apartments. Ah, so oh, cool. Are the hot dogs just in Europe? That's like you're just taking over. You're storming Europe with. <laughs> well, you know, it's you know, yeah. it's just one of those situations where it's like we we will yeah. eventually open a Duck in Dogs. Yeah. In uh, in Chicago or the Chicago area. Yeah. Um, but the, the the French thing, it just it's one of those situations where I've got these partners and they said we want to do this with you and it was like. Uh-huh. Cool. I don't have anybody. I didn't have anybody in Chicago yeah. coming saying, "Hey, we want to do this with you, and we'll partner on it, and we'll bring investment and stuff like yeah. that." So, and and I love France. Yeah. Always have. Um, you know, if if the only thing that comes of this yeah. whole endeavor in France is that I have an apartment in France, then it'll be a massive success. To that's me. cool. That if that if that's the only thing I get out of it. It'll be the biggest success in my life, yeah. you know, outside of my family, that I'm able to have a home in, in, in France if that happens. You know, um, so you know these guys are really smart businessmen, yeah. and they, um, you know, they have a, a keen understanding of the culinary background that I have and, mm-hmm. and a high respect for it. 
So they defer to me on the stuff that is important and take over the stuff that is Are they restaurant guys or just business guys? Business guys. Business guys who have a very, very strong connection to the culinary world. Mm. You know, the the main guy is really just kind of a serial entrepreneur. He worked for International Harvester for Mm. decades, but he's an engineer and he he continually comes, he invents cool shit. Like he invented this, currently uh, their business is a, a tire technology. So like he invented this thing that reads the treads on tires. So they sell it to high-end automobile dealerships. So when you roll your Mercedes into the dealer, yeah. this thing in the floor reads the tire and helps uh-huh. them diagnostic and all that. So that's the business they're currently yeah. in. They're not passionate about it. It's yeah. just that's the business they're in. And this guy, the main guy, he's older, he's 70-something, he, uh, he has always been involved in gourmand organizations. Mm-hmm. So he was part of a group called the Shenda Rotissier, which is an 800-year-old French gourmand association. <laughs> he ran the Shenda Rotissier chapter in Chicago. He's British, mm. born and raised in England. Yeah. Worked in France for 10, 12 years. Kids were born in France. Moved to Chicago 40 years ago, 35 years ago, whatever. And has been in Chicago ever since. And ran this, in his part-time social, ran this French gourmand organization that would put on black tie dinners at Mm. all the big hotels. And then they started evolving and getting more, you know, modern... Yeah, having dinners in Chinatown. Yeah. We've had a couple of dinners here. Yeah. It's an international organization. There's chapters all over the every major city in the world. And uh, and he has a home in Lyon, France. Mm. And uh, he's now the head of the 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 Rossier chapter in Lyon, France, the culinary capital of the world. Mm. Which is bizarre that this British yeah. citizen living in Chicago yeah. is the head of the whatever. So um, so he's been a loyal customer since mm. Four Seasons, since Ritz Carlton, mm. and a friend. And three years ago, maybe more, uh, I had gone to Paris for the tenth time to vacation and have fun. And you know, I took my son because uh, it was spring break and it was cheaper to mm. take my whole yeah. family <laughs> to Paris than to take them to Mexico. Like yeah, half the price. Not a great time of year yeah. in Paris. Um, when I came back, I had seen hot dogs all over Paris. Yeah. And not all over, I'd seen them like yeah. three times and I saw it on television. I was watching the yeah. news and somebody was making a hot dog. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so when I came back, he happened to be in the restaurant and he yeah. loves the hot dog here. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he said I was Paris. I said it was great. I said, but you know what? I want to open a hot dog stand in Paris. Mm. And he was like, what? And I told him what yeah. I saw. And his son, who worked for me at the Four Seasons Atlanta as one of my waiters while he was in college in Emory, mm. was, has lived in France since yeah. 2001. Um, they started talking mm. a year later, and he was in here. He'd been here many times yeah. in between. He was here having dinner. He's like, I talked to Mark, and we want to do this with you. I was like, what? So <laughs> open a, a hot dog restaurant in Paris. It's like, okay. And they've been spearheading it, you know? Yeah. Um, they, they found, I said the first thing we have to do is find, we have to find somebody to make the hot dogs because yeah. we can't get the hot dogs there. Right. So find that. So they found somebody to make the hot dogs and they got it right. And it took 
nine months to get yeah. that right. And uh, then it turned out that company is a large, owned by a larger company that now is partnering with us to try and help us get it open. So I had a two-hour meeting this morning with yeah. France, um, finalizing our website and uh, cool. discussing the two locations that are competing right now for the first Duck and Dogs. One's so that's what's called Duck and Dogs? Duck and Dogs. Yeah. It says Duck and Dogs and then Chicago, Paris. <laughs> that's cool. We open the first one in Paris. If it's a success, we open another one. Yeah. If that's a success, then we open one in London. Then we open one in Athens or whatever. Yeah. But we'll get the first one right. Right. Two locations. The first location is on the Champs-Élysées, about two and a half blocks from the Arc de Triomphe. And then uh, the second location is in front of the, uh, the Pompidou, which is the modern art museum. The I've ugly, been there. The ugliest art modern art museum I've It's, ever it's seen. a building turned inside out. It's, it's like It's like if you had... Like a person's guts on the outside instead it's of the inside. It's just insides. fucking awful. I've always hated it. Yeah. <laughs> and but we're seriously considering a spot <laughs> right in front of it, like literally. Yeah, but it's right a, it's in a front huge of tourist it. attraction. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's or the it was, second I mean, largest yeah. tourist attraction yeah. in France. Yeah. Versailles, the first. Um, <laughs> there you go. And it's uh, it's smack between the, the two most popular. The the most popular neighborhood is the one. Where the Champs Elysees, that's the first time I've seen But this is the Pompidou is smack between so, Leal and Marais. In a few years, he may be the Oscar Mayer of France. I've got no problem with that. <laughs> yeah. I'd be happy to be the Oscar Mayer of France. Well, cool. I was always aiming more to be the Hebrew national of France. That's the, the Vienna beef of no, <laughs> not, not the. V- I am very a, anti. Oh. Vienna beef are oh. a bunch of fucking criminals. Oh, all right. That I Those want to go more. after. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> All they, right. They ran me out of Sox Park. Ah. They ran Manny's out of United Center. Mm. They're antitrust, un-American fucks. Them's. All right. The, when they ran us out of Sox Park, my my. I, I the went, battle lines have been drawn. <laughs> when they ran us out of Sox Park four days before yeah. opening day. Yeah. I decided with a signed contract and a deal. Uh, I did that. Uh, no, yeah. No. Whatever. Uh, I, I decided I was going to rent a food truck uh-huh. with all this negative Vienna beef yeah. signs on it, <laughs> duck in dogs, and I was going to pull up in front of the front door yeah. of Sox Park, which is 100% illegal, yeah. and just open and start giving away duck yeah. dogs. And then my sister found out what I was doing, yeah. and she was like, you are not doing Well, that's a shame. You'll get arrested. I'm like, exactly. I'm sorry to That'll hear That'll be fantastic. I'm sorry to hear that about Vienna beef, because uh, I like their hot dogs, but... Well, you're a criminal, too. That's true. But not you for You know, Hebrew National is so much better. Yeah. So much better. <laughs> I kind of... Hebrew National was a big inspiration when I yeah. made the hot dog, the duck and duck recipe. No, it's a... It's yeah. juicy and big and really flavorful. Uh, there's, Just there's, doesn't have the, pork casing like I do. Yeah, there's a, yeah, For that's one, true. One pretty good reason. Yep. Well, yeah, that, that's a whole other, we, we could do a conversation for 10 hours about how, how dumb kosher is. and how, Oh, but, well, I've told you my kosher experience. Vienna's kosher. No, of course. Well, it's Jews started yeah. it. Yeah. That's oh, why it's I a beef hot dog. At the Four Seasons in Los Angeles, I had a kosher kitchen. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I, I, if you I, got Kat, Katzenberg sitting in oh, I, all I, day I, and night. <laughs> I, make, I make killer kosher food. Yeah. Killer. It's I know, just, I know yeah. more about kosherik law mm-hmm. than your average young 
rabbi. <laughs> I, I, used I, to have, yeah. I used to have a rotating rabbi is coming into the kitchen to observe while we yeah. were cooking. And after about four years, they'd send me new rabbis and yeah. they wouldn't know what the fuck they were talking about. I'd have to tell them the rules. Well, yeah, as a Jew, you know, it, that's, that religion is just another con, like, amongst they many all, others. Yeah, yeah. They're all fucking con. Yeah. I mean, there's some that are it's a, a way less. to hold on to I'd powers. I'd say Buddhism yeah. is a lot less of a yeah. con yeah. than Christianity, Catholicism, Islam, and Judaism. But yeah. It's still a con. No, Judaism is just the first one of those, so everything else is it's just a OG. shitty. It's the shitty. That's why the New it's Testament the is. It's Hill gang of scams. New, New Testament is just a shitty sequel to the real Bible, <laughs> which is the Old Testament, what they call the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, but like, that's. Oh, yeah. I went to Catholic schools for 13 years. <laughs> Kindergarten through high school. Yeah. Well, cool. Let's, we could probably cut this off. We probably right. we covered some stuff. Yeah, it's almost dinner time. I know. Yeah, this is all just making me hungry. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks, Kevin. My pleasure. Anytime. All right.